Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber, and it's a lonely night in the, the recording studio. Yeah, no jest today. No jest, no guest. So it's just us, which I think everyone knows what that means. So buckle up. This will be one of those tangential episodes where Steven can't remember the topic. So. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing happens, and we eventually just say, okay, please listen to us again in two weeks. But we'll try and make some stuff valuable in the middle there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start off this one by, I when I was editing the last episode, I got a chance to re-listen to everybody's positions again. And uh, so I haven't, I haven't read any of the feedback if anyone's if anything's come in yet, but I put down a little note here that after some thought, Steven's official opinion at the time of recording is that it was wrong to kick Sargon off of Patreon the way that they did it. If they told him to stop using the N-word and making snide comments about raping people and whatnot, and then he refused, then I think it would be fine. Jess made the excellent point that this doesn't allow him any room to contest his position in a formal way. I think David said something like that too. But just put it that succinctly, that like the way that they did it, they didn't leave him, you know, follow these 10 steps and you can be allowed back on the platform. This was more of just like a out of the, you know, pull the rug out kind of thing. And, you know. Yeah, it was it was, it was sort of like Tumblr randomly banning all sorts of accounts without warning. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm prepared. I'm trying to think if I want to stand by this or not. But you know what? Yeah. OK. I think even if it was somebody as despicable as Alex Jones or whatever. You tell them what they're doing wrong, and if they don't fix it, then they're kicked off. Okay. And I and I get where that's still slippery. You know, hey, you've got to you know buy our our books and drink our Kool Aid and you know come to our church and we'll let you stay on the platform. It's a slippery slope, but I do think that you know, <laughs> look, man, we asked you to stop t- you know threatening this woman with rape. If you don't stop it, we're going to kick you off, right? Yeah. Then I think at that point, it it it, it it's much more defensible. So yeah. my new position is that they that this case was handled poorly. And I think that there's that there's ground there to be discussed for, you know, setting up tenants for like, here's the terms of service for our platform, right? Um, <laughs> you know, Sam Harris pointed out at some point that, uh, in fact, I, there was a tweet from the CEO of Twitter mm-hmm. um, saying, thanks, Sam, it was good recording with you or something. So there's going to be an episode coming out with him. Okay. And I bet, I hope they bring this up. If they don't, I'm going to be pissed. But, you know, whenever... Trump was threatening North Korea with like, we'll rain, we'll rain down Armageddon or something on you. Mm-hmm. Harris was like, doesn't that violate Twitter's terms of service? Because <laughs> it does. Uh, yes, yes, it technically <laughs> and, does. And, but it technically does in a way that like isn't just me saying that. If it was me, that would also violate terms of service. But I can't actually rain Armageddon down upon North Korea. Right. Um, but Trump, in theory, could. So yeah. <sighs> I get why there's all kinds of great reasons not to ban him from Twitter. But <laughs> Actually, I don't think there's any great reasons to let him keep Twitter. He should have been kicked off Twitter a long time ago, but... Censorship? <laughs> just just for being stupid, I mean. You see his tweet from today? No, what do you say, Dale? Uh, all right, I'll dig it up. But I, mean, I was going to say, at this point, Twitter is basically a public platform, and like, especially if the president is just using it to randomly air his opinions. I mean, that really kind of demonstrates how much this is just a platform for people to say what they want. And it's it's if Twitter does go in and start really gatekeeping and, and gardening their area, then that's great, but that would be a radical change of what was, and that would make Twitter not the platform that it has pretended to be for a long time. Totally. And, and yeah, it's it's interesting. Um you don't, I mean, you it's, don't, it, it, it can be run like a private forum or it can be run like an open platform. But having like this halfway thing, we're like, oh, yeah, we're an open platform for everyone except for the people that we disagree with is, in my opinion, total bullshit. I think that's fair. Um, 
you know, by all means, you know, that's my thing with like Facebook. If Facebook had a downvote button, I'd probably still be on Facebook, hmm. you know, because like on at least on Reddit and there's definitely a hive mind and stuff depends on the on the subreddit and stuff. But like if somebody goes on there and says some crazy shit, you know, they get downvoted. And if you set your settings right, you don't even see it. Or you, you open up the comment with negative 600 downvotes and give them another one because they said something <laughs> terrible, right? Uh, anyway, speaking of people using Twitter to say something stupid. Yeah. Quote, be careful and try staying in your house. Large parts of the country, capital C for some reason, are suffering from tremendous amounts of snow and near record-setting cold. Amazing how big this system is. Wouldn't be bad to have a little of that old-fashioned global warming right now. <laughs> okay. Speaketh the president yes. this morning. So, yeah, being kicked off for being stupid i think they'd lose a lot of people but um like destroy their entire business model <laughs> <laughs> but you can curtail your own experience on there um well, talk- the best way to, cur- to to curate your experience on twitter not go on twitter yeah that's probably a safe way to do it um i was talking with uh went to lunch with matt freeman this this week and he was uh he had said that he's in just an effort to like make his online experience happier if you see something he's made a, like a he's resolved to if he sees something on there on any social media thing that like, you know, makes him unhappy or outraged, he just like stops following it. Even if like they often provide good stuff, he's like, no, I'm just, I'm just done. Whatever. And uh, that's not the worst way to do it. You know, if all you're doing is following Neil deGrasse Tyson from ripping apart movies with how bad their science is or, um, you know, whatever your motivational, uh, we rate dogs, Twitter, which if you're not familiar with, everyone should be aware of. Um, they're all good boys. Yes, they are. (laughs) (laughs) They're good dogs, Bron. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, anyway, that's my that's my thought on the Patreon episode, the the censorship one. So yeah. Um, anyway, we All have right. a, we have a topic for today. We do have a topic for today, sort of. Yes. Um, yeah, we are. We didn't ever quite get to the end of the whole uh, evolutionary psychopathology slash Albion Seed thing that we did like two or three episodes ago now. And we did want to finish that up, so I figured we would go ahead and do that today in addition to our less wrong and feedbacks and other things. Cool. Okay. Uh, so, as a quick refresher, if... Um, and, <laughs> boy, did we get some comments on that last episode, but we'll get to that later. Oh, the Patreon one? Uh, no, 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 the, the um, Albion Seed one. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, but as a quick refresher... Um, it seemed... Th- uh, the, the argument was that the four original settlers... Uh, settling groups in America had four very different cultures that they came from, which influenced, seemed to influence not only their life outcomes, but also their strategies for living lives. God, that sounds really obvious when you put it that way. Well, but it's worth spelling out. Okay. And the other thing that really struck me with reading these was just the graphs of how that continues to influence the attitudes of the region now like county by county breakdowns um you would think that's enough time for stuff to happen and things are less isolated than they used to be but uh there's still like remarkable tendencies to keep with that trend so that's really interesting yeah um yeah but the the position was that uh they tended to sort into two types of general life strategies ones of living fast uh, mating young and ones of living slower and mating older. Live fast and die hard. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, well, I'm just going to go ahead and, and read this next part. Okay. So this is a a stated, uh, a, a proposed mechanism for how that sort of thing might... Uh, um, Evolve, come about. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so sure here's what... here's a proposed mechanism for how that thing would work. Uh, it says an epigenetic mechanism looks around, quote unquote, which of course doesn't actually mean looks around, but in the same way that like when you're in the womb, you get a feel for the environment based on how stressed the mother is and how much uh, food you get, that sort of thing. Your genes and whatever hormones that are impacting your development yeah. notice the environment in yes. a non-sentient way. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Uh, so epigenetic mechanism looks around, quote unquote, at the world during the first few years of life to try to figure out if you're living in the sort of unpredictable, dangerous environment that needs a fast strategy or the sort of safe, masterable environment that needs a slow strategy. Depending on your genetic predisposition and the observable features of the environment, this mechanism makes a decision, quote, to lock you into a faster or slower strat strategy, setting your personality traits more towards one side or the other. And then uh, they gave a breakdown of the four most common ways to exp the four most common ways to interact with your environment. So just just to pause there, that that thesis isn't that controversial. Mm, not at all, I don't think. I don't think so either. Like epigenetics has a bunch of woo around it, but you know, look if you eat the right foods, you can change genetics or whatever is the about as dumb as it gets. But the idea that you know people with you know mothers that were uh, in starving situations during pregnancy, those children have different life outcomes and different biology um, than mm. children who were not malnourished as feti, mm -hmm. fetuses. Feti is more fun to say. Okay, but I'm pretty sure it's fetuses. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, all right. I'm with you so far. Okay. Let's see if you can lose me here. All right. So the four basic strategies that are uh, laid out are the antagonistic slash exploitative strategy, a fast strategy that focuses on getting ahead by defecting against other people. Because it expects a short and noisy life without the kinds of predictable iterated games that build reciprocity, it throws all this away and focuses on getting ahead quick. And these are the kinds of, you know, lie, cheat, and steal sort of people that will burn the commons and burn their um, friendships in in efforts to just go. Yeah, or, or only phone, form friendships for you know, the purposes of getting more whatever they need before they move on to the next town to scam, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it might be worth stopping here really quick just to point out that none of this is, like, morally expulsory um, or uh, morally... Um, none of this none of this is about the, the ethics involved. Right. You know, this isn't saying, oh, look, their mom was hungry, so now they're assholes, and that makes it okay. Um, this is just, you know, biology. Yeah. You know, so, like... Yeah, you might have problems that came from things outside your control, but that doesn't make them, like, not problems. And also, it's not... I mean, yes, we generally don't want people to act like this, but it's totally understandable, too, in ways. Like, if you are growing up in a hostile environment where everybody hates you and they're not going to give you a break, sometimes the best thing you can do is be like, fuck all of you, fuck the system. I'm going to get what I can because you hate me and want me to die anyway. Right. And especially if you take it from the gene-centric point of view, right? Where, you know, your, your genes that make your brain aren't really caring that, like, you know, they don't have this inner Gandhi that they're trying to suppress. They just don't build one. You know, if you're, if you're born in a war-ravaged country yeah. and, you know, under the, under the heel of some whatever dictatorship, then, like, yeah, you're going to do what you need to do. And it could be the most, the, you know, arguably the morally best thing for you to do to, you know, supplant the system and get the fuck out of there, right? So. Right. Yeah, I always imagine like uh, the the gay Jewish kid living in a Nazi society, be like you know take everything you can, burn the place down, and run, because fuck all of them. Yeah. Anyways, uh, that is that is one. Uh, next one is the creative slash seductive strategy, a fast strategy that focuses on getting ahead through sexual selection, i.e., optimizing for being really sexy. 
Because Which, sign me up. <laughs> because it expects a short and noisy life, it focuses on raw sex appeal, which peaks in the late teens and early 20s, as opposed to things like social status or ability to care for children, which peaks later. <laughs> Not much to dissect there other than, like, you know, I guess we can think of examples, maybe, of people, you know, would this, this wouldn't mean necessarily every couple who has kids, you know, at 19 or something, yeah. but certainly maybe, is this referring to, like, the jocks? Um, I don't think it is actually like, I felt mildly called out by the fact that creative is in that title. I'm like, Oh, I see like the rock stars. Cause the rock stars generally get laid a lot and then like look like hell by the time they get in their forties. Okay. I can follow that. And yeah, but, and I was like, what did poets and artists, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They, I, they're all just trying to get laid. Aren't they? I mean like, that's the thing Are about poets. I get everyone's trying to get laid. Right, but, I, but that's that's like the thing about um um people who are in theater, right? You you there's you a look at their life theater. and you're like, "Man, that's an awesome life. I would want that." But then you find out they're basically living in complete poverty and have nothing going for them in their lives except they're all super hot and fucking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we were I was watching um old SNL episodes last night. And we started with uh, season one, episode one, which opens with George Carlin, oh. or rather, it opens with a bit with uh, John Belushi. Okay. The, I forget he's he was around for SNL forever, but then Carlin was the first host, okay. which I like plugging because I've been a Carlin fan for like fifteen years. But uh, just I want to this is see, told you this would be full of tangents. Hmm. Um, the the culture I think would been I didn't watch Saturday Night Live growing up, and I think it would have been really fun to have because yeah. you really get the pulse of that sector of society mm-hmm. once a week okay. you know you, it, it, you've you seen a few, handful of episodes maybe at some point of Saturday Night Live yeah yeah I used to watch it a lot yeah so it's just like if you're into the especially the comedy industry everybody who's anybody's been through this through this workshop right mm-hmm. and I, I remember like you know Chris um Chris Pratt famously like lived in a van and he moved to LA and stuff right. and he was apparently also always a wholesome dude but like you said full-on poverty probably mm-hmm. still getting laid because he's Chris Pratt <laughs> but um at least I certainly hope so but I guess I just I had I was at a couple of drinks last night, so a lot of my thoughts were somewhat disjointed and not that easy to recall. But I remember when Rachel and I went, to, or when she was getting her master's in New York, and I went and visited. We went to a place in Times Square called like the Starlight Cafe, which was a complete nightmare. Okay. It was really funny. It was like it was this diner, and everyone was like in theme costume. You know, someone like I think our waitress was dressed like Marilyn Monroe or something, and everybody was like singing, and you know, even like we were in line for like the Empire State Building to go to the top. And this guy was singing a One Direction song really well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Rachel and I, were, after we left the Starlight Cafe, I, I kind of looked, looked at her and I was like, you know, I think everybody here who's like doing stuff to get noticed is trying to, quote, get discovered. Right. You know, so they're here doing this grungy shit, you know, working for, you know, seven bucks an hour in a diner in New York City. And they're just waiting for somebody, some talent agent to come along and notice them. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the I guess the reason I brought that up. Well, I can draw it back to the article. What about that strategy is fast? I guess, hold on, let me answer my own question. That has no long-term planning. This right. is just like, I'm going to put everything I can. I'm going to go to the city and I'm going to get discovered. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Yeah. And not like, I'm going to get a job and like, so I can feed myself in five years. And um, also fast. Yeah, yeah. And fast in terms that there's going to be a lot of sex early on. Fingers which, crossed. Right, yeah. <laughs> which nowadays we have ways of preventing that from resulting in children, but uh, used to not be the case. And so that sort of strategy would result in having kids early in life yeah all right cool thanks for the digression what is number three number three is the pro-social slash caregiving strategy a slow strategy that focuses on being a responsible pillar of the community who everyone likes 
Because it expects a slow and stable life, it focuses on lasting relationships and cultivating a good relationship that will serve it well in iterated games. A good reputation that will serve it well in iterated games. Sorry. No, yes. you're good. So basically Hufflepuff. <laughs> oh yeah, we got to tie... Do you want to plug that cracked uh, video? Because uh, we can tie them into these or Let's after do the it fact. after we do the, the next right. one, yeah. So the pro-social caregiving strategy is... I guess what, like the loving parent? Yeah, this is like everyone in middle America, right? Okay. Or or it's what everyone thinks that everyone in middle America is. The, the nuclear the leave family. Leave it to beaver, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. All right, the skilled provisioning strategy. Skilled provisioning strategy is a slow strategy that focuses on being good at a specific useful task. Or at specific useful tasks. Because it expects a slow and stable life, it focuses on gaining abilities that may take years to bear any fruit. This is the nerd strategy. <laughs> and the professional strategy. And the professional I mean, you strategy. You don't have to be a nerd to be a, like a great carpenter or a handyman or something, right? No, that's true. Um, so, yeah, nerds certainly, you know, I'm trying to get good at my career slow strategy so I can do, let me pull out a word here. Yeah. For specific useful tasks. It doesn't say to make, oh yeah, expect a slow and stable life, but also to take, you know, to get the skills to make that happen. Mm-hmm. It sounds like anybody who masters a trade, like a, a trade, not a skill, would mm-hmm. fit into this category, right? Um, probably. I mean, yes. Okay. Yes, I would think so. Like someone who's really good at HVAC systems or a master plumber, that kind of thing. Yeah. So these aren't all necessarily exclusive. No. But it's easy to it's easy to draw them into boxes. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And the the first thing that you notice very quickly with this, and I think it was posi- I think it was even brought up in the article, was uh, that it's it seems very easy when you get these sorts of four groupings to sort everything in the world into one of these four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if this is like an aspect of having four things, but uh, there's a lot of cases in the world where there's four things that everything wants to get sorted into. And I mean, we we started with Hufflepuff, but I mean, seriously, like that pro-social caregiver is Hufflepuffs. The skilled provisioning is Ravenclaw. The creative seductive is... um is Gryffindor, and then the antagonistic explo- exploitative is Slytherin, right? Yeah. Or maybe maybe swap those two? I'm not sure, the Slytherin and Gryffindor. Yeah, those those seem a little tough to pin down. Plus, the downside of Slytherin is that there's an obvious bad one. Yes. Yeah. So let's do this with the Ninja Turtles, because okay. they're all good guys. Okay. So we can say, I'm trying to, I only... Antagonistic is Raphael. Yeah. Yeah. And that would make the skilled provisioning strategy Donatello. Absolutely. Um pro-social caregiving Leonardo, uh-huh. which leaves somehow Michelangelo for creative and seductive. <laughs> he was the party dude. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there were, and uh, I believe Scott Alexander mentioned this, that there were also four humors, which more or less fit these four in ancient Greece. The uh, four elements Oh yeah, uh, fit this as well. You found that great cracked article. Or cr- cracked after hours video that was like yeah. seven minutes long that we're definitely gonna link to because it summarizes all of these really well. Yeah, and I've seen a handful of other things. They're really fun. I need to watch more of them. Um, they, I don't. I guess maybe they do a regular show and then they do like an after hours joke show or something. No, um, the after hours was just one of their regular shows. Okay, it's it just the name of one of their shows. It, the conceit is that they meet after you know a thing, but now that's 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 the show. Gotcha. Uh, that the show has stopped a long time ago though. They but, had I think three seasons, maybe uh, four. I don't think I ever saw the show then. I remember back good. back in the heyday of Cracked dot com. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. It would just be kind of like the good version of like BuzzFeed's like eight things you won't believe, but yeah. they really were and they were like real stuff and they were well written. At its peak, Cracked was awesome. Yeah, I, I learned a lot of actual cool, interesting things there. Yeah. 
And, you know, some of the After Hours episodes are just some of their best uh, articles put into video format, but they're good. I'll check it out. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. So the one I wanted to throw out here was the Avengers for these four categories. Avengers have more than four people in it. They do. So we'll pick, you know. um, (laughs) That's cheating then. Well, no, no. We'll pick. There's like five core members, right? Okay. So I, so like I'm going through this and I'm trying to think. Captain America's pro-social caregiving. I think you're right. And then Iron Man would be skilled provisioning. I was thinking Iron Man might be the antagonistic exploitive one. That'd be Hulk, because Hulk smash. <laughs> Does Hulk have a strategy? <laughs> smash! <laughs> so I was thinking, because Rachel and I just rewatched The Avengers, because the first one, because we need to get her caught up again before we start Endgame and Captain Marvel in a couple months. So the, the, the hard part with this is their characters really evolve, mm-hmm. especially like especially all of them, but <laughs> mo- mo- most noticeably Captain America, or um, Cap a bit. Cap actually evolves less. I'd say... Uh, it's really Tony's Thor and Tony evolve yeah. a lot. Thor especially, like you know, because he, at the beginning, he's straight up the kind of the creative seductive strategy. Right. He's just like, you know, this 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 meathead beefcake who's <laughs> just going to come in, kick ass, take names, and bet Get all the, the women. Girl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and same with Tony. You know, in the first up in the first Iron Man, he's just like, you know, he's the reformed kind of war profiteer. Yeah. But he's still very much of like the asshole who doesn't care, right? But he did spend decades like building up to that position. Yeah. But eh, he is certainly he, not reproducing early in life. That, that's fair, but he sort of fell ass backwards into that, right? It's hard to say, but yeah. and it, none of them will fit perfectly. But so let's see, pro-social caregiving. I guess you're right, Captain America, especially in the early Cap. Like later on, when he's more of like you know, the I'm rebel. just here to fight for whatever. Yeah, and then that leaves skilled provisioning. Who's left? Yeah, maybe that does have to be Tony, because but it, none of his strategy was slow. His whole thing was kind of like kick ass, and you know, well, it it's, seemed it's much a more life like, strategy though. Uh, it's the 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 Iron Man thing wasn't a life strategy. That was more of like a I'm gonna solve this problem, go kick some ass. I don't okay. know. It, I'm, maybe I'm being too too analytical about it. I thought this would be easier, <laughs> and I'm having more more difficulty thinking of like you know whatever. Black Widow and Hawkeye are also Avengers, but Hawkeye yes. <laughs> <laughs> he shoots arrows, man. <laughs> That's not a power. At least they joke about that in Age of. Oh, you didn't see Age of Ultron. I know, but I saw that clip. Oh, where he's like, I'm here with a bow and arrow. None of this makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was like, oh, man. It was fun. Okay. Yeah, at least, I, I, you know, if you, for anyone out there who hasn't seen Age of Ultron but has seen um, Infinity War, that, you know, red dude with the stone in his face doesn't make any sense unless you saw Age of Ultron. Well, I mean, they explained it to me. Someone they, explained it to me before I went in. Okay, good. Yeah. But still. is Was Hawkeye even in Infinity War? No, he okay. wasn't. They they say that he was, he and um, uh, Scott... Mm, can't remember his last name. Ant Man. Okay. They both took so they both sided with Captain America during <clears throat> Civil War. Okay. And while most of Cap's team just went on the run, uh, Hawkeye and Ant Man took plea deals with the government so they could, you know, be with their families. Huh. Um, which made Ant Man two really fun. It was okay. just very much a comedy movie. Good okay. fun. But my my joke on Infinity War is like Hawkeye doesn't bring anything to the team except like he's their heart. <laughs> and that's why they lost Infinity War. <laughs> cool. Um all right, so the Avengers thing didn't pan out. I'll think of another example before the end of this. But that does make us, that should make us at least think if we're just falling into a convenient mental trap. Oh, we definitely, especially when you find things that don't very easily fit. Yeah. So my other one I wanted to throw, and this doesn't really fit with like the reproductive strategies, mm-hmm. but if we pick the houses or the turtles, mm-hmm. I was going to name out like four prominent rationalists and we could, we could, we could shoehorn them into a turtle costume no no that it doesn't you can't just pick four random people you have to have a team of four already or a group four 
grouping thing. Okay, so and it can't be four prominent people. No, no, no. Okay. It has to be a, like, a group of four that already exists. Then I don't have one for rationalists. Okay. Okay. Well, but there's the four horsemen of the new atheists. Okay, let me go through that one. So <laughs> I would say antagonistic exploitive sounds very much like Hitch. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If we had to pick one. Yeah. Right? Dawkins is a close second for that. But right. well not not really. He's not he's antagonist he's I think people find him antagonistic, but he's not by nature. If whereas we're, Hitch would like to brawl. He le- he loved the brawl. Yeah. yeah. So that that's a no brainer. Creative seductive strategy. That one might be Dawkins or Harris. Because the obvious pro social caring is Dennett. Yeah. Yeah. Um so let's see, who's the who's the creative seductive one? What turtle did we decide that was? Uh, Michelangelo. That was, uh, yes. Hmm. Let's just see who the skilled provisioning one is then. That'd probably be Dawkins because he's the one who's done the most in academia. Well, I mean, Dennett has too, but like Sam Harris wasn't wasn't that. I don't think he got, I don't think he, he really became quote quote became a scientist until after that. Yeah. So, um, but the skilled provisioning. Well, let's see. You know what? Absolutely. Creative, seductive is Sam Harris because he's the one who's gone ahead and created his own podcast and works on his personality as what gets him forward. And he's cultivating this whole thing. Yeah, you know, he's of... he's half his more than half of his income is basically entertainment, right? Well, he might not put it as entertainment, but it comes from his podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's people listen to him because they enjoy listening to that as opposed to because they need his knowledge or because they need what he can produce with his hands. That's right. Yeah. And whereas Den or Dawkins, you know, produces these great books with his hands and that pays his bills. Yeah. Or, um, you know, scientific advances. Yeah. I'm not sure. I remember I watched some interview with him where, you know, people asked him what like science has he done in like the last few decades. And it's like, not much, you know, he did. I mean, I, I know I mean, he, he introduced he, the concept of the selfish gene. That's true. Or, or the, um, the, the meme rather. Both. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, but that was in 1975. Well, so I mean, yeah. What have you done lately? Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, but still, what he's doing now is you know he's I I think he's still writing books. I haven't. Yeah. I, the last one I read was uh, the Greatest Show on Earth, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, like it, popularity doesn't matter to him nearly as much. No, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so because certainly because his life doesn't depend on it. Right. You know, or his livelihood rather. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, if popularity mattered more to him. He w- he would listen to his friends that told him to shut the fuck up on Twitter. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Twitter. The only way to win is not to play. <laughs> Alrighty, so anyways, should we continue with this? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, but let's uh let's move on from the whole, you know, are we fix fucking things up by thinking of everything in fours, which I think we have caveated very significantly and had some fun with. Um if we do look at it that way though, we start to ask some interesting questions about what life interventions work. Because there have been a lot of preschool studies which have shown repeatedly uh, over many years and many studies that there is no real um, effect on kids' intelligence or, or learning. Their IQ changes are not permanent. They're um, improved in skill, grade skill level, tapers off after a year or two. Like no matter how much preschool intervention there is, it never seems to make any academic difference by the time they get to high school. However, so that sounds really unintuitive to parents who put their kids in expensive preschools, right? But because you would think they get a big head start. Yeah, well, I but mean, they don't get a head start with the things that they're expecting, but they get a head start with other stuff, right? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Even though it doesn't improve their academic performance or um, IQ scores or ta- on tests or whatever, uh, it does correlate always to improved life outcomes. 
early preschool tends to have make people much uh stable better at life later on in life they have more um high degrees i guess of education uh better jobs less time in prison less crime convictions and that doesn't doesn't really necessarily make sense because what we're trying to give them more of education they're not getting and yet somehow their life improves anyway and um that doesn't make sense unless we think that what we're actually giving them is a, a safe environment in free, in preschool that it wasn't fixing a a brain problem but it was pushing them into a slower life strategy by having them feel less like a this is a chaotic hostile world and more like this is a stable predictable exploitable world where i can have the slow life strategy that is generally considered good for society and uh that is really good in the modern era hey, my inner robin hansen is just yelling at me saying that's that's because you're domesticating them early <laughs> you're, you're house training them before people think they could be house trained well i mean you know <laughs> if you want to call it domestication call it domestication that's that's what slow life strategy is yeah. right D working better with others oh yeah i wasn't saying it was necessarily uh yeah, but the domestication is generally thought of as a bad thing because oh. you're being made into a pet, right? I would hope that our discussion with with Robin on his uh, on the elephant in the brain made clear that if the, if our discussion didn't, the book does that it's not a bad thing. It's if anything, it's a good thing. You know, you can hold a job, and the world makes that important. Mm -hmm. it, it, anyone who's had a desk job knows that it's not our natural state to sit at the desk for eight hours and stare at a screen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Um, being able to do so gives you all kinds of life perks, like being able to, you know, eat and stuff. So, mm. and sleep indoors. So, yeah. um, and have heating and air conditioning. Yeah. But I, I like I was saying, I wasn't saying that that was necessarily, um, in opposition to those other points, but that it was just another way to frame it. You know, this, this the slower life thing is really weird too, because so I have this nice place I'm living in, right? It's well insulated, it's heated in the winter, it's cooled in the summer, it keeps me safe from the elements. And I see people who literally live in tents outside, you know, and that is a very uncomfortable life. And you can tell by the time that they're in their 50s, they look like hell. They probably aren't going to live through their 60s. It's 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 I'm sure they're in constant discomfort and pain. But on the other hand, what am I doing? I'm just kind of prolonging my life to have much more of the years where I'm old and wrinkled and no one wants to sleep with me. And... <laughs> And is it really worth all that slaving away during my young years? Like, does it matter if, if you're, if you look better when you're older, you're still too old to get laid a lot, right? So I think there's, there's suboptimal strategies and like different goals here, right? So like, if your goal is to be, you know, uh, Ted Danson when you're 70 and still able to get it, then like, <laughs> maybe focus your efforts on other stuff. It's hard to say, whatever, but like, um... The I would argue that the point of like having a place for your stuff and staying warm and stuff isn't just so you look better and feel better. Although that's a, it's it's largely about the feeling better part. But yeah. I would say that somebody who you know makes money makes enough money like we do, and continues to live in really shitty studio apartments, you know, and just like lives like a bum, but stores away like you know incessantly so that they can have a great retirement. That seems like kind of a lost strategy, right? Because yeah. you've wasted all of your like optimal years that you can do stuff by just you know never going out never eating good food whatever so certainly if you take it to too far an extreme you're not enjoying it but i think i think the goal is like 
you have this place that you know you can stay warm and comfortable and have a life worth living. Not 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 that living on the street isn't worth living, but yeah. many people hate you know many people hate living on the street, right? So yeah. because you hate that, you do what it takes to not do that. It just it strikes me. I mean, people used to live on less than a dollar a day for most of human history, right? Humans weren't nearly as productive as we are now, and it just it didn't seem to matter. Sure, they had huts basically that kept the rain from falling on your head, but you were still exposed to basically all the elements, and you had to burn wood inside to not freeze to death. And and yet they were still happy. They they still had lives. I they don't know. They still had lives and stuff. But I think the downside is that like the minute they couldn't do stuff, they were completely dependent on the people to take care of them, or they just died. Right. Whereas like. And a lot of them died anyway. Right. Just randomly in the middle of life. And so the goal for us is to like, you know, live healthily enough for the next 30 years and then retire and then have, you know, enough saved up to like not die like they did, like our poor ancestors. I'm not sure where to go with that. I don't know. Other than I feel like the slow strategy, it sounds like it's just like a new thing, you know, but it's it because we're we're applying it to people and because that's natural and that's what we're talking about. But the article brings up like animals and stuff, too. You know, so like, why do ducks, why do like, uh, whatever, mates, uh, litters, hatches of, whatever you call them, whatever batches of ducks are called (laughs) when, when they, they have, they have 20 something kids and a couple survive, right? And they have 20 because they know a lot of them are going to die. Whereas elephants and chimps and stuff, they have one or two and they're going to take care of them for 10, 15 years. I'm not sure what chimps are, but elephants do it like that. And, uh, they're like, yep, I'm going to invest everything and you're going to live. So from like... I think looking at it, it, it's it's analogous to human experience and human lives, but the real lens to view this through, I think, in the the context of nature is like the gene-centric view, right? What What's in, what's in the interest of your genes to survive? Yeah. And so... Well, the thing is, I don't care about my genes. Right. That's why it doesn't apply to us as, as well, right? I guess what I'm really getting at is that aging is bullshit. Agreed. You, you work all your life just so that you can... Be somewhat comfortable when you're old. Thank you. That was the other point I wanted to make. You reminded me that the reason that we're living and saving is that we live long enough for life extension slash singularity stuff, right? Right. Um, yeah. You guys forget this is a rationalist podcast. We're st- we're still we're still singularity cultists. Yeah. So, which we'll have to talk about at some point. Um, but yeah, my my goal isn't. I mean, I still th- I still think about this because I for the first time in the last couple of years I've like have enough money to like save for retirement and do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'll be 30 in a few months, which is weird. Like now, like at this point, I'm saving stuff, but everybody does that's, it differently and whatever. Well, it's usually about 30. Well, in your I mean, 20s, you're just getting started. <laughs> one, of, one of my groomsmen, when I went and I was, uh, I saw him on LinkedIn. Um, he's been at his job for eight years. And I'm like, dude, you've been doing something for eight years? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I haven't done anything for like anything like that amount of time. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the, my goal, like, so the reason I brought up my, my savings and stuff is like, I, I still have this weird, which we'll talk about. The, we'll have a future episode at some point too. We we have no shortage of topics to get around to. This <laughs> this isn't going away. My my planning for the future is like I think uh, what Naveen when we had him on uh, when he had said, "When in doubt, bet on things staying the same." Mm-hmm. That's really resonated with me because okay. like I have no I I would be flabbergasted if in forty years society looks anything like it do, or looks much like it does today. Okay. Like. Because there'll be too many starving old people on the streets or, you know, if, if things stay like they are now and there's not much change. So I'm thinking some universal basic income will keep us all alive, which will make our, our retirements just like cool party money. Well, um, I mean, they kind of already have that for old people. Kind of, but we keep they keep telling us that that's going to be all dried up in 10 years or whatever, right? Yeah. So 
in America, the you pay Social Security to the government every paycheck for your entire life, and you're told that when you retire, you'll get that back little bit by little bit. And well, the you government don't get it back, but the people who are young when you retire give you their money. Yeah, but I think certainly in some countries too, like Japan, there's more old people than there are young people by like a long shot. So there's not enough to pay into it. So mm-hmm. what I'm getting at is like we're either going to be in some weird dystopia where like you know at least the way I think about it where our savings don't matter because you can't eat the money um, or you certainly can't eat the bits that it's stored on, on the computer. Um, or, you know, we'll be in some UBI utopia or better, best yet, some transhumanist utopia where, you know, we don't need money and, you know, shelter because we don't have meat suits that are super vulnerable and uncomfortable all the time. It just means that we're going to need electricity. Yeah, and that's super cheap. The sun's out, you know, half the time. So <laughs> wind's available. All the, all those all those clean energy people keep talking about how there's there's energy all over the place. So whatever it is, I uh, my long strategy. How did that come up? Eh, came up. Oh, saving stuff. Oh, getting old sucks. Yeah. yeah. So the goal of of saving and having a comfortable life is that you live long enough that aging no longer becomes a problem. Yeah. That's the way I'm thinking about it. All right. All righty. Podcast. Onwards. <laughs> so. Let's see the next bullet point here. A lot of intelligent, responsible, basically decent young men complain of romantic failure. Most MIT students are probably pursuing slow life strategies. Most violent adolescents in psych hospitals are, forget this is, or no one forget this was a Scott Alexander article who works in a, well, he'd worked, he moved to the Bay Area. Does he still work in a, like, psych ER? No, I I don't believe so anyway. That was where he took over his residency. Oh, okay. Well, in in any case, this is where he got a lot of his formative uh, understanding of, human psychology and, and nature, which is definitely like a, what, trial by fire trenches view of, of human human life, but it's valuable and it's accurate for a lot of people. So anyway, he worked in a um, an emergency psych ward. Or a, no, wait, he was a psychologist at an, at an ER. I forget whatever it was. Right. Um, he saw a lot of people who were being committed involuntarily and were in horrible psychiatric shape. Exactly. So the reason I brought that up is because this line here about um, violent adolescents in psych hospitals are probably pursuing fast ones. This is from personal observation of people coming in. So, fast strategies activate a suite of traits designed for having sex earlier. Slow life strategies activate a suite of traits designed for preventing early sex. The good news for these people is that they're adapted for a life strategy which, in the past, has consistently resulted in reproduction at some point. Yeah. So, if you're the the town blacksmith, but again, that's the wrong way to think about it, right? Because you know, even blacksmithing is fairly new. But if you were, uh, well, I guess not. It's fairly new but it's been around for thousands of years right so like i think even um i don't think i think probably too much of my my understanding of of greek and roman culture comes from movies like uh 300 mm-hmm. but they didn't make the blacksmiths go fight did they well the spartans had their own warrior cast but a That's lot of right. the greeks um a lot of the greek cities just had people they they would raise the people be like anyone who can fight come fight these people are trying to invade us and enslave us weren't there some cultures that like said all right cool you've got a trade that the society needs you don't have to go fight in war i bet that's been around that's i'm sure that has been and if it hasn't let's pretend it was so i'm not wrong i think so. it was i think it was more likely just the case that someone couldn't fight because you know they were a scholar or something they really were no good at any of the things that demand physical well a scholar can still draw the enemy fire right so um, (laughs) i suppose (laughs) but but if if you were the only person in your town who knew how to you know build shelters well okay here's the thing let's say that we all live together in one housing complex right as opposed to uh as opposed to spread across the city as we currently are if uh the people from aurora ganged up and we're going to come burn our place down kill us take our women and our stuff 
Would you be like, I'm sorry, I have a valuable skill. I'm going to stay over here and program my computer. Or would you be like, hey, Eniosh, hey, next door neighbor, let's get our pitchforks and defend our land. That's fair. Yeah, it was I, basically anyone who could fight, fought. Well, but there might be, just to bring that point home, or I guess to take it the other way, there might be people that are worth removing from the conflict and saying, all right, look, you, 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 and you, we're going to take over here hmm. and we're going to hold the front lines while you guys like survive and move society five miles west yeah. or whatever, just because you guys are the essential ones to keep keep society worth living or something. But the way I was thinking about it is that you wouldn't be conscripted to go to war against like a, you know, someone who's not on your borders or something, right? Um, maybe. Um, no. I mean... We're really the, the only thing the only thing that I am only historical background I have to draw on right now is um pre republic Rome when uh they would just raise people from the countryside from the city be like, Hey, we gotta come fight with us and uh people like had to provide their own weapons and armor and uh the equestrian class provided their own horses, which is why they were known as the equestrians. They were rich enough to have horses when they rode off into war, and then they came back home and they went back to their jobs afterwards. Hmm. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't really a conscription thing as much as it was a wars here, let's go kind of thing. That's fair. Things yeah. work different. And then, also, you know, eventually they got good at conquering and had a professional standing army and became an empire. But at first, a lot of those city states were just like, okay, it's fighting time. Everybody strap on the sword that you got. Or make, you know, find one on the way to war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many people died? How many soldiers died in World War II? Um, I don't Do you know. Have a ballpark figure? I feel like it's sub million, right? A lot of a lot of civilian know. casualties. Yeah. Well, whatever it was, I know that like there were battles in like pre-Roman and you know during my my American education of history is showing is showing right now, but um, so I can't name the the years. But there were you know there were significant battles where hundreds of thousands of people died in like in conflicts. I don't uh, think before the pre-modern era there were ever battles where that many people died. Really, hundreds of thousands? Maybe. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking of of like wars, but where it would be where it'd be like a third of your population died in war, like in some conflicts. The maybe closest I can think of is when like uh, Genghis Khan was rampaging through Asia and would literally set, massacre an entire city. Uh, oh, I was thinking of soldiers. No, I don't. There just weren't that many people. See, I, I thought I had it in my head somewhere. Maybe I was listening to a Steve Pinker talk at some point where, like, he had said that people would be conscripted to go fight the battles on the plains and you would lose tens of thousands in a day or something i could see um, tens of thousands yeah but hundreds is a lot of people yeah, you, you need really wide lines for that to happen huh? yeah so maybe maybe a battle could last a week or something in that case i don't know but yeah. i'll have to read the dust jacket of the better angels of our nature again so yeah. i never read the book it was 700 something pages wasn't it so I don't remember. I, I, I not that I don't remember. I've never seen the book, <laughs> so I couldn't tell you. I know it was big. Yeah, okay. and I'm like, I'm a slow reader. I'll. That's the downside. No, there just there just weren't that many people back then. Uh, the Persian Empire spanned most of the world, and they had like what 120,000 men altogether in their in their empire fighting men. That sounds low, but I'm not a doctor, so doctor of history. Hold on a second. We are literally sitting on something. I can tell us this. <laughs> Well, I I guess I'll bring that up only just because, like, what I remember is that the percentage of people would die, that that died, was huge. Whereas, like, I'm not sure what percentage of, of the United States we lost in World War II, but it was not negligible, but it was small. Um, we lost a lot of people, and so did other countries. But it wasn't like we lost, like, a third of our, of, of our population or something, right? Holy fuck. What do you got? Am I right? Um, there are wildly differing accounts. Some people saying... 
over 5 million people in the Persian army. But that looks like it was probably inflated. Greek sources estimate seven to 800,000 soldiers, which is a whole of a lot more than I thought there were. And 1.7 million must have included non-combatants. How many? 1.7 million, including non-combatants. Hmm. Well, I just saw that military deaths from World War II, from all causes, totaled for somewhere between 21 and 25 million. Um, I think that's on all sides. Okay. Unfortunately, civilian deaths totaled somewhere between 50 and 55 million. So that's kind of a drag how that shook out. Yeah. But, you know, how many people... I don't know what the population... We really should have done some homework before I went off on my history. I... I am very interested in history, but I know very little about it. So I'm getting around to learning about it. Yeah, it does seem like here's here's sources that say that Persian army appears to have included 300,000 infantry and 60,000 cavalry, which is closer to what I was thinking. In 1887, Hans Delberg stated that the army of Xerxes must have included 55,000 fighting men at the most. Oh, so apparently World War II was the most costly war in terms of human life. Yeah, yeah, because I, I can't imagine an ancient army having... Five million men in it. There just weren't that many humans around. Hmm. Stalingrad has had the most deaths, but I'm looking at specifically um, what I'm trying to find here is uh, per population. Hmm. Okay. And so, like, apparently the Battle of Stalingrad was the most um, was the was the battle with the highest number of casualties, somewhere around two million. Jesus. Um, which is crazy, right? Yeah. But I don't know what the populations of of Russia and, and the United States or in the Axis forces were back then. So. This is a really long way. I can't remember how we even got on old war stuff. Anyway, there's my, there's you guys' thing where... This is going to be a joy to edit. <laughs> Stephen needs to learn to learn history. But yeah, no, going back to all before we got sidetracked, as we do often, I guess. Um, uh, don't say I, 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 don't I, say I didn't warn you. <laughs> right. I know just 15 minutes ago, I was being like, man, we slave away at an office for these modern conveniences just so we can get old and comfort. But... Uh, Based on based on that last paragraph of Scott's, I really, really think that I'd much rather have the life of the MIT student than the young psychotic in a psych ward. <laughs> Aging and comfort starting to sound pretty good now, isn't it? <laughs> it really is, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess I could sit behind a computer monitor and do spreadsheets for eight hours a day as opposed to having to, I don't know, do whatever people without an education do. Well, even just without like a that ability to regulate their actions. Yeah. Well, like I mean, I know somebody who didn't finish high school who you know is a I'm not sure what maybe master plumber whatever the mm. classification is. And I mean, um, technically, and I only finished high school myself. I dropped out of college, so it's not like I really have an education. Yeah, I think we're misappropriating the use of the word education. We mean training. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I pulled out a quote here that I like because this is it's a little soundbite like this that keep me like energized reading a Scott Alexander essay because mm. he's great and he it's it's really good um ratio of like word count to like educational content mm-hmm. um there's not a lot of rambling maybe a good example of a bad bad example of that or a good example of a bad way to do that would be like anything that you could if you google a recipe you scroll through like three four paragraphs of like this person's bullshit life story right and it's like well when i used to make this and blah, blah, it's like just give me the fucking bullet points man oh my god I, I i have such a hard time reading articles in prestigious journals and shit not prestigious journals but like the new york times or washington post oh, or sure. because like i i know there's some a lot of times good reporting interesting things but I want to get to that and not be like, so I interviewed this old lady about her life circumstances and these are all the things and then her daughter did this and this and man, wasn't it a tragedy? Like to get around to finally saying what needs to be said. I'm like, 
I don't give a fuck. I'm yeah. never going to meet these people. I hope they all die tomorrow. <laughs> or It's hope- not true. I just, you know, but if their deaths would make it so I didn't have to read those four <laughs> paragraphs, I'd be okay with that. Or maybe, I hope they're all doing great, but I don't really care enough to read about it. Yes. <laughs> um, like, I was listening to um, This American Life. There's one on school shootings, which was a great way to start my Monday. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't imagine reading that. It was it would have been super boring. And granted, it was it was presented for audio, but it was just like, you know, the actual content they were delivering was just mired in, you know, stops and, you know, talking with different people. And that would be a bad way to read an essay. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's this great essay that a coworker sent me on basically how Newt Gingrich is personally responsible for destroying the Republican Party and making them a bunch of assholes. Wow. Um, I can send you the article. It was really interesting. Yeah, that sounds interesting. But I, I remember when Newt was a big deal. I was in high school and, yeah. His whole thing since, like, the 70s was, like, we got to stop playing nice. He would go to, like, you know, conservative think tanks and conservative uh, campuses and be like, we got to be assholes. We've got to, we've got to, you know, play dirty. We've got to cheat. We've got to do whatever. Hmm. That's the point. None of this, like, you know, let's hold the esteem of the ambitions of, of a greater America in mind. It's like, no, let's fuck that and just try and try and be shitty. Hmm. Um, anyway, this thing took me, like, two days to read because it didn't distill it down to, like, things Newt did. in bullet, And, you know, even if it was bullet point paragraph, whatever, it was just, like this long exegesis and the guy kept talking about well then newt and i were at the zoo it turns out he really likes visiting zoos and and here's a picture of him with a turtle and it's like come on man um anyway i thought i didn't read a lot of nonfiction. like just recently i've started reading some nonfiction because i thought it was like fiction where every paragraph is important and you got to read everything (laughs) and like i just started reading nonfiction. fiction i'm like okay i can skip this page okay i can skip this page like i was like holy shit this goes by so fast because most of it is unnecessary crap most of my like non-fiction reading comes from sites like wikipedia yeah uh, especially if i want to learn if get I want, to it right? if i want to learn about something mm-hmm. you know if i want to learn about you know if i need to go off and get a crash course on on world history i'm gonna read the wikipedia sections on it because it leaves out all the fluffy bullshit granted the fluffy bullshit is really interesting if that's your thing but if mm-hmm. you want to just know what's going on or what happened you know skip all that also speaking of bad word count to like you know content deliverance i'm doing great so far this podcast (laughs) (laughs) anyway a a good example of what makes alexander not just uh educational but entertaining i pulled out this quote quote and it's seductive to be able to think of it as all part of a plan literally seductive in the sense of mimetic evolution like that hogwarts chart (laughs) (laughs) so it's just you know he, he doesn't sound like you know an esoteric you know i'm delivering all this stuff he's just like I don't know. It, yeah. it, he doesn't seem like a guy with like too much time on his hands that he's just writing all this stuff out to show that he knows all this stuff. It's like, oh, okay, he is tying this like you know to a nerdy, funny way that literally made me laugh out loud reading this. So, and also like the Hogwarts chart is literally seductive in the evolutionary mimetic sense. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> you know, also literally true because it is seductive to think, oh yeah, you know, we were raised in more stable environments, so we have this new slower life strategy, and people who are raised in a chaotic, shitty uh, environments have the fast life strategy, and so. That's kind of like the plan, you know? The genes plan was like, well, this is the only way I can get reproduced, so this is why I'm going to go. So it, it, it is seductive to think of it that way. Yeah, totally. Which is probably why we did, you know, an episode and a half about it. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's also just, like I said, my, I guess I didn't say, but I've been thinking about, you know, my, my first real dive into, like, the joy of science was reading Richard Dawkins. And his book, which I didn't actually read the whole thing, uh, The Selfish Gene, you know, lays out the, the gene-centric point of view where it's wrong to think about the evolution and or, or about evolution guiding the fitness of organisms, especially individuals, but it's about maximizing the fitness of genes. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, granted, we as humans don't care about our genes. And so it's, this is just more fun for like understanding how the world got to be how it is and less about like how we should live our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you'll see like, um, I don't know, like guinea pigs and ducks and other things, you know, they, they hatch or they're born. And then five minutes later, they're running around with their eyes open, eating solid food. Like, whereas, you know, humans, um, I guess some cats, dogs, you know, whatever bigger animals tend to, you know, tend to be anyway. Um, they start off for the first couple of weeks, whatever they don't, they can't see, they can't do anything. They're completely helpless. And that, that really indicates the survival strategies of those, of those species. And I don't know, that sounds, it is sort of esoteric and pointless as far as how we should live our lives, but it's super interesting. So you, you can walk around and just see these things. It's, I don't know. It sounds hippie. That, that doesn't, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's, it makes it an interesting way to relate to the world around you. Yeah. And to understand what's going on. Yeah. And there are moods that I have less and less now, but I used to have all the time of like, I want to know what's going on. So um, one of these days I'll get that, that spark back and be more scholarly. But mm. um, do we want to, I want to jump to feedback before we do less wrong stuff, because there is some feedback directly pertinent to this that I want to bring up while we're on the topic. Yeah, totally. Because there were a bunch of, of things said about our last episode. Cool. On this. Okay. In that case, I'm going to go to Not Without Incident, who says, The idea that poor middle Americans are overrepresented in the military is mostly a myth. People from the poorest and wealthiest consensus tracts are underrepresented. And so are West Virginians, who are probably the prototypical Appalachians. Um, I, I was very, I followed the link that they provided and was really surprised that, yeah, the very poorest in the U.S. were underrepresented in the military, which was like, I thought personally surprising. I don't know. I wouldn't have guessed it either. Mm. I would think that you struggle to not be hungry as a kid. And even if you're, especially if you're raised in the environment where it's like, look, I know if I left the house, my parents would have like more food for themselves. Mm. You'd think, hey, cool. These people will feed me, give me shelter and train me and then pay for me to get a higher education. I'm going to go do that. You know, mm. frankly, I'm really curious. I haven't clicked the article does, or clicked the link. Does it, is it just data or does this is the kind of thing where I dig an NPR, like ad nauseum interview sort of thing? Cause I uh, know it was just a few graphs. The, the West Virginia thing was interesting because West Virginia was an outlier in all the Southern states. Like all the Southern states are strongly overrepresented in the military. Uh, and the, the ones that you would expect to be underrepresented, like the, the Northeast ones were, uh, West Virginia struck out as slightly underrepresented in the military, and I don't know why West Virginia was unique in that way, but all the other southern ones were over, so mm, I'm not going to concede that one. Everything I know about West Virginia comes from the announcement trailer for Fallout 76, so <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> I better not weigh in. Okay. Oh, he has another comment, but I'll come back to that later because it's not related to this topic. Supreme Switch says, Quakers are still active in many parts of the world. And then not with that incident says, I used to go to Quaker meetings sometimes with a friend when I was a kid, and I'm not that old. There are eight monthly meetings in my city. I wonder if there's some confusion between Quaker and Shaker going on. Also, I think it's fair to say that modern Quakers are very different than Quakers of the 18th century, but so are modern Catholics, and nobody's claiming Catholicism is extinct. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I thought, when I think of Quakers, I think of the old guy on this oatmeal box. So I just automatically that's thought... Good, that's good marketing right there. <laughs> yeah, right? I just automatically pictured those. So maybe there's a lot more Quakers and we just don't hear about them because they're, you know, very tolerant, accepting, quiet folk. Yeah, I mean, if you're not making waves, nobody's going to hear you, right? So. Yeah, if you're not like out there screaming, praise Jesus and <laughs> and having mega church rallies and shit. Yeah, I think... Um, 
certainly I don't think Scott was make Scott or the author of uh, Albion Seed was making a point that like these cultures have remained unchanged for 200 years, mm-hmm. but that there are surprising uh, extrapolations you can make from people's location and their, especially their ancestral location to like their current attitudes. Yeah. But yeah, certainly they're, they're different. Uh, this one I thought was the, the biggest one for me. Um, Rockham says, Rockham, Rockham. At one point, the discussion went in the direction of some segments of the population are genetically predisposed to being brutish, crude, and violent. They are unpleasant to be around, but at least useful for military or manual labor. That, rhino- that line of reasoning is dangerous and can think of a few good societies and many bad ones that adhere to it. Maybe I misunderstood you. If so, please be clearer. Um, and yeah, I-, I would like to say that I definitely was not trying to say that at all. Um, I think that obviously genetics have some effect on everything because that's just kind of a truism. Uh, but I-, I was trying to say that some segments of the population are culturally predisposed to being brutish, crude, and violent. Like, that was my major contention, that some cultures really are worse than others for living in a modern society with other people. And uh, I think that it should be okay to say that and to try to push the cultures that are more adapted to the to the society we like. Yeah, careful. I mean, someone's writing a golden ticket to the intellectual dark web when you, make, when you say things like that, but... Um, you're not saying, and it's those people over there. No, and um, I also don't think like genetics has nearly that much to do with it. Like, culture is a much bigger deal than than genetics, in my opinion. I know plenty of people from the south who have moved to you know Denver, um, because we have a lot of influx of those sorts of people, and they um they aren't that way. There's a reason they left the south. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they will sometimes tell me about their friends who are still back there, how their early childhood was like, and you know how they managed to be a bit more stable. But it's it's it, it's really remarkable that um, the way that people are, the culture they're exposed to, how big a difference that makes on the rest of their life. And I feel really grateful for my parents being as awesome as they were. And I know it's not people anyone's fault for being raised in a shitty culture, but I do think that. We have to say that sometimes this culture isn't the greatest and we should try to steer people away from them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's, it's just a sad lottery that, you know, some kids lose. You know, you don't get to pick your parents. If you're born, you know, under a, a culture that thinks like the Taliban is super awesome and we're going to send them, you know, we're going to tithe to the Taliban directly or something. Yeah. And it's like, what chance do you have to, I mean, you, everyone has a chance. But like the thing is, your, your future outcomes are highly constrained and... You know, if you get out, it's like a big deal that you made it out because you had so much to overcome. And I want to say, like, I know a couple people who have come ancestrally from that border region, and I do not think that they're genetically inferior because they came from there. No, no. And, yeah, so that's that's the difference that keeps you off the trains of intellectual dark web. Um, <laughs> why? So. Do, all right. There's gonna, there's another comment about this coming up, but why do you keep saying that about the intellectual dark web? I, I poke fun at it. Yeah, I, but they, they're not the ones who are going around saying that, you know— races are they're, they're not racist no they're the ones that pretend you can't have those conversations or else you get because we were talking about deplatforming last week and yeah, i was yeah. thinking about this the whole thing is that like you can't say things like that because you know your college will make you write an apology essay and you right. know whatever and it's like i don't know, I, I i think it's funny i should probably well, I, think I, mean, the, I think the joke is super dead at this the, point the but. guy who wrote the the bell curve like was assaulted and the woman that was um escorting him who wasn't even you know 
working for him. She was working for the university. You have to go to a hospital. No, 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 totally. And that's over the line. And none of this is okay. Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. But like I was listening to one of the most recent Very Bad Wizards where it was like the Christmas episode where I think I mentioned this last time. Uh, Tamler the Philosopher? Uh, uh, no. Um, Dave, yes, yes. Whatever, whichever one whose mom is Christina Hoff Summers. Yeah, yeah, that's Or stepmom. They had like a half hour drunken argument about. Uh, also, I only said no because I knew like Steven's the one who doesn't know their name, so he's going to get it wrong. So my <laughs> reflex was no. And then I was like, oh, wait, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so sorry about that. No, you're, you're totally fine. <laughs> um, they, that like the mom was talking about how some guy, I forget what, oh, it was, um, you know, he got on an elevator. It was like at some conference or maybe out of school. I can't remember. And it was a professor. And someone, some woman asked him, what floor? And he's like, oh, um, uh, lingerie, please. Which is like an old joke, apparently, because you know, because they're not in a in a uh, shopping center building, you know, they're they're at a hotel or something. Yeah. And so, if it's an old joke, whatever. The point, I'm sure it was some old guy, which is you know makes this old joke more like okay, I guess. <laughs> if it was a joke that he is used to telling, you know what? Twenty years from now, we're going to be making jokes about the Avengers, and kids are going to get really offended or something. I'm already offended. So. <laughs> anyway, or at the very uh, least, they just won't get them. That's right. They'll be like, "Who's this old guy? Why is he talking about avenging things?" Out of touch nerds. Yeah. Um. So she was talking about how it was like, you know, this big deal that like he, you know, his his university is making him write an apology, and you know, Dave was like, "So fucking what?" Like, don't give me. And but what she was saying, like, she made it sound like it was this whole big, like, kind of like deplatforming. This person's, you know, scared for their job, and it's like, yeah. but they're not. This person that you're, the example that you're raising here, this guy's fine. Nothing's gonna happen. And if it does happen, we can talk about it. But nothing did. Mm. Um, I guess why? I don't know why I find so much fun beating that horse. I think uh, it's I. I never talk about it off the show. I think it just comes up because right. we we touch on things that. Taken if you quote mine them and take them out of and which means to take them out of context. You're trying to distance yourself from that so that you will not be attacked. I don't really care. Okay. I, don't, I don't have anything to lose. Okay. Um, but I, I stand by everything I say. But the the joke is that if I were if you were to take something like what you said about you know uh, these people not being brutes or whatever, mm-hmm. um, kind of makes it, it sounds like a my best friend some of my friends are black kind of thing whatever. But it's obviously not. But my point is if you quote mind it. Then you know somebody who I can imagine like Christina Hoff Summer or G- J- P- J- Jordan Peterson's voice could be like, "See, that's the thing. He needs to be worried now, or whatever, right?" And I, it's not that funny, mm-hmm. and I don't know why I keep saying it. So I think you, I think you're right. I'll, I'll, I'll ease off of the the break line there. No, oh, um, like I mean, I don't know. We're not big enough for anyone to care, right? But if someone someone could absolutely take that thing that we just said about people, um, you know, giving money to the Taliban. And me saying that some cultures are predisposed to, supposed to being brutish and crude and take that and see, look, they hate Muslims. Why are these white dudes so racist? And that's sort of what, what I meant as like the joke, right? Because that, that's the, I hate saying the intellectual dark web like it's a thing, but to the extent that it <laughs> it's is. It's become a thing. Um, it, they, they, if they can... you've mentioned it on a podcast, three podcasts in a row, it's now a thing. All right. So what they do is they'll say things that, give ammunition to people who want to say bad things who so, oh the idw people yeah so okay. like you know um say for example you point out that you know some people come from brutish cultures and someone else could say yeah like those dirty muslims and right. that's not something i would endorse that's the that's the joke or that's the line that someone might might take it with yeah um so that's the joke i'm making and i you're right i'm kind of preemptively staving off those jokes um well, but the fact is that someone could take everything we've said in this episode and that one a few episodes back 
and use that as ammunition to say, like those dirty Muslims, right? Or, you know, whatever those those southern war-hungry people or something. Right, right, America. right. Or, or so, those redneck hicks or something. Yeah. yeah, whatever they want to say. Or all those black people. And what, what are we going to do about that? Are, no. like, do, are we going to not talk about this thing? So that's the joke, is that like <laughs> someone like Christina Hoff Summers would say, you have to not talk about it because someone could do that. And it's, you know, then no, your Chris, whole life... Christina Hoff Summers is the one who's saying, literally, you should talk about it anyway and fuck those people. That's no, no. what makes her intellectual dark web. No, no, no. What she's saying is that your your livelihood is at risk if you want to say those things. Well, I mean... But that's why that's why they want, like, you know, a private journal to publish these results in because everything's so scary because the mob will get you. I mean, you're not scared because, like... You don't think anyone because I don't your matter. Leadership, yeah. You don't think anyone in your leadership at your company is going to get wind of this and think that it's going to affect you. But like, if the podcast were popular enough and uh, twenty thousand people on Twitter or something started adding your boss and being like, "Why do you employ this racist?" That's a really good point. If this if this blew up and we got you know hundred thousand downloads a, uh, an episode, I'd go back and delete some episodes probably. Really. I can't think of which one right off, but I definitely go back and probably edit some. Okay. Um, you know, I got a lot of kickback. It would have been like the first. Oh, it was on the polyamory episodes. Mm, yeah. Um, when I had said something along the lines of like, I'm no fan of like Islam, mm-hmm. and you guys give me these looks like I'd said I hate black people, and I'm like, <laughs> what? Right. And I kind of staggered and said something about suicide bombers or something. But my my whole thing on that was like, just to you know, I guess bring up that two year old dead horse was like, I'm. My position is I'm against religion in general. I, I I don't I to the extent that it provides polite comfort or whatever personal comfort to somebody, go nuts. I'm past that in my anti theism stage. But mm-hmm. I guess the practice in your life to the extent that it affects other people, especially your kids, I'm pretty uppity about. Yeah. Um and so like the and this isn't all of Islam for sure, but you know, there there are parts of the world where like it's still punishable by death to be gay. Mm-hmm. Or um you know, where leaving the faith is, is a crime that you have to worry about worry about the, the safety of your life about. Right. Where people flee your country and, you know, cut ties with their families because they, they whatever, they're, they're gay, they, they left the faith, they... There, uh, yeah. There's cultures where if your sister is raped, you have to kill her because it's dishonored your whole family. Right. And so I think that's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. And so whatever whatever teaches that you should do that, I'm against. And to the extent that it's if it's a if it's a small niche group like the Scientologists who I don't think do any of those things but do other crazy shit, um, I'm against Scientology too. But since they're, I'm assuming like a few thousand people, maybe tens. Yeah, they're in the tens of thousands. But I mean that's nothing. Right. You know that, that that how many people live in Denver? A million. Yeah. More. So that's that's a drop in the ocean, right? Yeah. But if if Scientologists numbered over a billion, or if they were the largest religion on the planet, that'd be fucking scary. That's my point, right? Yeah. So, but to the extent that they're small, so like you know, I'm against religion. I'm against more more specifically harmful religions and harmful branches of religions, and that scales with how big they are. Yeah. So that's that's my whole thing on it. You know, and don't get me wrong. I know Muslim people. I I know uh, I know more uh, apostates than I know practicing Muslims, but. I think I talked about before, I just happen to know very few religious people, mm-hmm. but I think that's not by like deliberate effort. I guess I just don't go to places to meet them. Yeah. Most of my religious people that I run into, I run into like out in the world. Oh, so that's my, that's how I get by is I never go outside. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. So that's, that's my thing on that. But the, the anti-religion thing, I, I had a point here to make to drive this back to the brutish thing. And I don't Which really is why one. you hate the intellectual dark web people. Yeah, but now that line is fuzzy. <laughs> like I said, the, the line was that like if you take something, um, eh, I feel like I've beaten the horse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
All right, moving on. All righty. So this very next comment by Sailor Vulcan is, Hi, this one is, by the way, obviously aimed at you since this was um, not my position. Hi, I noticed that... Bring it on. <laughs> Sailor Vulcan, hi. Oh, wait, hi. Sailor Vulcan is the one who wrote that awesome essay that we talked about um, on Less Wrong. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sailor Vulcan's a cool person. I'm just like seeing the name. I, I, I'm remembering names from different places now, so... Sweet. You're starting to get a feeling for some of these people. Yeah. Hi. I noticed that in this episode, you seem to wrongfully conflate the intellectual dark web movement with the alt-right slash white supremacists slash misogynists. However, the intellectual dark web movement has both right-wing and left-wing people in it, and it is not a hate movement like the alt-right is. The whole purpose of the intellectual dark web movement is to, one, provide spaces where people can have op open civil intellectual discussion even when the subject matter or the views being expressed are culturally taboo, and, two... To resist and protest exactly the kind of censorship and extra-legal mob justice which you talked about in this episode. In this episode, you also contradicted yourself. On the one hand, you talked about how people in the IDW movement, i.e. Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, keep talking about how they're so oppressed as if their voices and ideas are not being systematically silenced. But you also said that there's a lot of extra-legal mob justice which censors and punishes people for not towing the Democratic-slash-SJW party line. Which is it? Uh, I think part of the problem here is that there's more than one of us on the podcast. Because I am the one who said that there's a lot of extra-legal mob justice, uh, which I'm, you know... I would say that, too. So that's fine. About. You would say that, in, too. In that okay. sense, I, I contradict myself. And thank you for pointing that out. That was a really good way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so my position on it, I think I've hashed out a bit, is that it, like, I, I feel... I, I, I mostly completely joke about it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like I should do some actual... Let me think about this. Um, like, I mean, at this point, Brett Weinstein is in the IDW, and he's, like, way left. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. So He's just it, not as left as some of the people that were screaming at him in his university, but he's, like, super left. Right. So, like, there are a lot of people on the right, you know, like uh, Dave Rubin and uh, who, you know, whatever, claims to be a libertarian but has mm -hmm. some weird stuff. And um, the... Sam Harris is pretty left, too. He, he definitely is. And yet he keeps talking about the left like there's some toxic, weird... He, he, he associates... He, he equates the left with, like the ravaging Twitter mob. Right. Which is hardly fair. Right. Um, and I, I think, think well, it's what you see. Like, cause when, what he sees is the ravaging Twitter mob from the extreme left coming after him. And so if that's most of his experience, then that's, yeah, but it's weird. Cause he's got to know that he's that, you know, the, the inflammatory culture war that's, you know, kicked around on the social media isn't just people getting people to vote Trump. Right. It's also getting people on the left to hate each other. Cause it's so easy. Yeah. Uh, especially when you get he figureheads who, whose job it is literally to get, uh, you know, communities together online and radicalize them and get them to hate other sub communities. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Harris had a great guest on a couple weeks ago where they talked about this exact thing. Mm. So the fact that he's on, he seems to be, I guess, never acknowledged the fact that like maybe some of the stuff I see online comes from people whose job it is, is to make me feel outraged and afraid. Um, I don't I think know. it can be hard to see that when you are feeling afraid, though, and all the attacks are coming from what you thought were your allies on the left. That's fair. Right. And, you know, to belabor this a bit for Sam Harris, like, he lives with actual security concerns for having written The End of Faith, mm -hmm. where he's so hard against Islam. And, you know, he, he's received, he, he lives, I'm assuming, at a secret address. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he has a very uh, sensible concern for his safety. And yet there are people that he's run into in real life on the left who would say, no, you don't, you're being racist. Oh, really? um, well, maybe I'm straw manning, but you know, if he would say, look, I'm afraid that, you know, Muslim extremists are going to kill me. They would say that's, 
you know, that's that's ridiculous. You know, that's all rightist propaganda or something, right? Okay. So don't get me wrong. The the intellectual dark web, like I said, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that like it serves a, 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 an important purpose. Um, but it it does. I, I think it's it's a weird umbrella term. Um, I certainly think that there there should be communities. The, the world should be a community where anyone can get together and discuss anything. Right. You know, we just talked about you know if if you if you want to question the tenets of your religion in you know some parts of Pakistan, you could get killed. Um, so like it's that that's insane and that's wrong. I think they're holding a line that, or trying to hold a line anyway. That I'm glad there's a group out there at least fighting to to keep it from not eroding as quickly. Yeah, and I think I joke about like to the extent that they're doing that because I I feel like a lot of it is you know, like how on the left they play the oppression Olympics where, oh my God, I'm in, you know, seven epicycles or I'm at, I'm at the conjunction of seven uh, Venn diagrams of victimhood right. and don't I have it so hard mm-hmm. that that seems to be socially rewarded. So like there's there's an urge to catch up on that on the other side. Yeah. And I, I think it's a really stupid game, um, but I'm also not a public figure. Maybe you get points for, you know, the more people who throw bottles at you when you go to, you know, conventions or something, the more points you get. I, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious. Right. But anyway, to answer Sailor Vulcan's direct question, um, which you unfortunately deleted, so Sorry. I can't reread. Wait, no, it's <laughs> right back. Put it back now. Thank you. Um, I want to point out again that this is a really well put question from a rationalist author who's <laughs> who's who's, and it, I'm not struggling. So it's a gotcha. No, no. Well, okay. it, it's a gotcha in a in a good intellectual sense, in that I don't really know how to answer this. Not because like I uh, I have you know some conception i'm trying to stick to or something the, the fact is i haven't thought this out that much mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of this is like overhyped worriedness but a lot of it isn't i think it's also some horns effect from some of the major players mm-hmm. that you know like i i don't think that like we talked about on the patreon episode with david who is a good i think not defender in that he will stand by peterson on everything but he's a good person to have in the room if i'm gonna shit on jordan peterson because he would say hey look here's a lot of good things that he did but even Pe- even david was willing to acknowledge that like look you're right. He didn't really know what to do with his sudden fame. Sudden fame, and you know, he he says he said some weird things. He's anti-climate change. Um, oh, really? Yeah. This, okay. So it's like I don't really know how you well, can be that. I'm way. anti-climate change too. But he's got <laughs> belief in climate change. That's right. He's a climate change denier. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe I should look up what the like their actual core structure is my understanding is that this was kind of a term thrown out as a joke but i think brett weinstein didn't he make up the term i have no um, idea who first made it up it, it, I, I think it's th- it's sort of out as a joke yeah yeah so i i never left like the joke hood and it's like when people so when i constantly joke about it i'm only doing it in that context yeah. to the to the extent that there's a group of people having important conversations that they feel like need to be had but they can't have them at uh i don't know whatever campus douglas murray got assaulted at you know that that's that's a real thing and uh so which which is it it's both like well no it's not it's uh i don't know i'm trying to think like jordan peterson and, and sam harris are never going to lose their audiences and never going to lose they're never going to be silenced because they're too big mm-hmm. and yet there might be smaller people who are silenced you know like i might be told to shut up at work if i keep trying to bring up the bell curve or something mm-hmm. um but that's not really intellectual dark web territory, right? Like maybe the workplace isn't the best place to have a conversation about how some people are better at my job because of genetics than others, right? Right. Like the Google memo guy who I think also probably wasn't silenced. Like he got on the Joe Rogan podcast, didn't he? I have no idea what happened to him. He I lost his job at Google though. Yeah. 
which sucks. Hmm. Um, hopefully, he can make money somewhere else because, you know, if you work at Google, you're great at whatever. I'm assuming as a programmer. Yeah. Oh, wait, he definitely was because that was the whole point. I wish I had a more succinct answer for you, but it's not so much of an answer as it is like an explanation of where I'm coming from. I was treating it more like a joke. To the extent that it's serious, I think it's important and I think that it's valuable. Even if I think some people over there are saying things that are probably stupid and wrong, that's important that they should be able to say stupid and wrong things. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I think any sort of like censorship law is a bad idea. I think um, any group with Jordan Peterson in it is going to have lots of stupid and wrong things said within it. That's fair. <laughs> and and some valuable things too, probably, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what he contributes valuable that, what that's valuable outside of like psychology, but there's probably something. Hmm. So the um, – I made a joke uh, – or I didn't actually make this in public. There was uh, – you know, Sam Harris sent out like – if you're a subscriber to the show or a Patreon uh, supporter, when he was leaving, he sent out an email saying – it was like – six sentences long saying I'm leaving tomorrow. Hmm. You can follow my website if you want. And then Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson released a video to much the same effect. That was 31 minutes long. <laughs> and like, that's why I don't listen to Jordan Peterson. Cause I don't have all day. Um, but that, that's, that's my beef with him. That's my beef with his way to deliver content rather than not my, not just my beef with him. So what you're saying is you wouldn't listen to our podcast. I started this podcast because I wanted something like this to listen to. Okay. I certainly hope that this isn't so bad that I wouldn't listen to it myself. Well, I mean, sometimes we get off on tangents and that's, such. That's fair. Um, so I, I imagine that the people who don't like our podcast already don't listen to it. That's fair. Yeah. And we're not so big that, like, you know, people are going to be talking about us and they're going to hear about it at work or something, right? right. So I mean, this, this is our format now. Like, either you like it or you don't. Yeah. And, you know... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Please listen to a different podcast if you don't like this one. (laughs) Yeah. Or provide thoughtful feedback. But I know I've said this a couple times, but I'm kind of scattered right now. Sorry, Sailor Vulcan. But yes, to answer your question, when I I make jokes about it, that's not me seriously engaging with it. Um, To the extent that I am, I think I've I've answered that. By all means, I really appreciated your comment and uh, hit us up again. I'm eager to hear um, where I'm wrong. If you want to talk more about this, let us know. That sounds valuable. So sorry that took... I'm assuming 10 minutes. No worries. All right. All right. Yeah, we got a couple less wrong posts here to chat about. Cool. Less wrong post numero uno was... Before we start, let me just say one more thing to Sailor Vulcan and anyone who's been disenchanted about my intellectual dark web discussion, that I will stop talking about it until I get a more serious understanding and uh, approach to it. I mean, you don't have to stop talking about it. But I think I do if I'm going to not take it seriously to some people, you know, about... I don't know. It'd be like if every time I, I that like atheism came up, maybe a joke about the new atheists. But like mm-hmm. I, re- I refuse to like never engage with the actual content. It'd be kind of old. It'd seem disingenuous, and I feel like that's how it's coming off here. And I totally see that. Mm-hmm. And it would seem not just disingenuous, but like intellectually dishonest. Like I, I'm, I'm poking fun at straw men, and that's where I'm leaving it. And I'm treating like that's all it is. There's more stuff here to actually talk about. So I'll, I'll be, I'll be a more, I'll, ser- I'll more seriously investigate this before it comes up again. Cool. All right. Back to less wrong. Okay. Less wrong post. The first was super stimuli and the collapse of Western civilization. So the post basically introduced the concept of super stimuli, which pretty sure we've talked about many times and we know, but quick recap, it's a stimulus that is, um, it's like the cocaine of, as opposed to a coca plant. We, we all evolved like... Coca is also probably a super stimulus. Not to beat the point, but... Well, I mean, the coca plant, not real nearly that much. You, like, chew on it, and it kind of, like, stimulates you a little bit, but it's not like taking cocaine. No, no, that that's... stuff fair. is super concentrated. And I would say it's more just like a soda compared to... Or like a candy bar compared to an apple. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, so, to, sorry to 
choose to nitpick on the example. But You're right. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. One Good point. Well, because one like coca doesn't do anything. Well, it doesn't matter. Coca does. Coca isn't like a a food or like something that we needed as our in, in the ancestral environment that we're hardwired to like for good reasons. You're right. Where sugar is. Yeah, okay. That was a terrible example. We should no, no, cut like, my example. It's fine. Okay. So, yeah, this is more like um, we we were evolutionarily adapted to uh, seek out high-calorie foods because calories are pretty scarce in the environment, and this is something that would lead us to live longer. And um, they they it was an adaptive behavior back in the day. We sometimes found sweet things like apples, or nice fatty things, and they made us happy and we ate them. And nowadays, we can take uh, all those things and combine them into a uh, candy bar, which is just more sweet and fat in one concentrated package than you could ever find in the ancestral environment, and it has absolutely nothing in there that's good for you. Uh, so the kind of exact opposite of what what we had, uh, had evolved for, uh, this ability for. Yeah, or this, dis- this this adaptation. Yeah. And so, like, the, the thing is, is that we are hardwired for great reasons to enjoy certain stimuli, certain um, input, mm-hmm. and yet that, that is hijacked with technology or certain discoveries in nature that, oh, look, this hits that note really well for your brain, and our brains don't know the difference. Mm-hmm. Do our brains, you know, it's... The, the reason a candy bar tastes so good because it has all the stuff in it and that our our hungry ancestors really wanted and needed in volumes that they couldn't imagine. Yeah. You might kill a caveman by giving him a Snickers. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wouldn't kill him. <laughs> no, but he, he would never be the same. <laughs> um, so, yeah, super stimuli and the collapse of Western civilization. The point of the article is that the, the market will continue to respond to incentives to competitively produce super stimuli and that regulation is complicated and probably won't work. Yeah. He uses the example of video games, which I feel, excuse me, I'm saying this too fast. He uses the example of video games, which I feel is a really good, like, non-charged um, example and pointed out that at the time of writing, some half dozen people had died playing World of Warcraft or... One of those. Yeah. Um, uh, various online role-playing games. Yeah. You've actually mentioned on more than one occasion on this podcast, Diablo 3, and how it's like perfectly timed to give you little hits, little rewards. It's it's closer to perfect. I guess I didn't play World of Warcraft, but um, which probably because I, I have some disciplinarian in my head that's saying, look, you can't play World of Warcraft if you want to have a life. Hmm. Steven, you are incapable of handling this. <laughs> you're, you're the idiot who put 500 hours into your first playthrough of Elder Scrolls Oblivion. If you were online actually dick measuring with other people, you would just die at your desk. So hmm. I don't have what it takes. But yeah, so Diablo 3, I think is, this came out before Diablo 3. And it, I don't think it was perfect. I'm not sure if anyone died playing it, but... I was just showing this to Rachel. No, someone had because I was showing her. I was telling her, um, my fiance, that people have died playing games like this, and she's watching me play, and she's like, "I don't get how that's possible." Hmm. And I was like, "Here, just watch for like five minutes. I'm going to tell you when when things pop up." And granted, it's different from the back seat, but from the front seat, you're playing, um, you're going through a mob of enemies, and you know, it it would just seem that the moment I'm like, "Okay, as soon as this one's done, I'm going to call it. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pause and quit." Yeah. And then I come across a double experience shrine. I'm like, oh, this last two minutes, I've got to ride this out. Double experience, man. Let's 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 beat that grind. And then, oh man, double attack. Oh, you know, I I finally got enough to go fight this boss that was killing me a second ago. And it's it wasn't enough to kill me, mm-hmm. but it was enough that I I absolutely noticed the little rat in my head hitting that button for more cocaine. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it was just that immediate feedback of, nope, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I totally felt it. That was a game where, you know, I lost sleep. Not not a ton. This wasn't yeah. the most addictive game I played. 
Um, but it, I lost lots of sleep to World of Warcraft. Yeah, not it's not just you, man. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and if there's a company that can make a game that's five percent more addictive than that one, they're gonna get the market share. That's right. Yeah. It's so the the point is that the the market is there for people wanting to consume this stuff because just like there's somebody making the next sweetener or something, right? I think the the point that he was this was more just like I think more feedback on or more response to feedback. I don't know if this was part of his initial layout of essays for the sequences, but you know, what about regulation? Couldn't we just, you know, pass a law to stop that? But how do you pass a law that says if, a Do- if Diablo 4 is too fun to play, you can't release it? Right. Like that sounds a bizarre, B totalitarian, and C totally unworkable, yeah. right? Do you give it to a control group of a thousand people, and if more than two of them die, you, it doesn't make it to market? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? Sorry, this game is too. Oh my god! Then there'd be a black market for game, games that are too good for the government to let you to play them. Oh yeah, hands down, that would be awesome. I mean, so good it was banned <laughs> in twelve countries. That that actually sounds like a really good marketing for. I would buy the hell out of that game. <laughs> What's all the hype about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to skip the next bullet point or two. If people have the right to be tempted, this is a quote, uh, if people have the right to be tempted and that's what free will is all about, the market is going to supply. I'd like, I, can I stop real quick? If people have the right to be tempted and that's what free will is all about. I'd, I'd never quite heard someone put it that way before, that free will is the right to be tempted, which, you know, I, that only sticks out to me because... I have, you know, a real hard-on with religion and the devil, and specifically, like, the, the um, Lucifer speech near the end of Devil's Advocate, but the, which is just all about temptation and free will. And I run into those themes a lot in the stuff that I enjoy reading, and so that was, like, that was interesting. I think on the free will tangent that, it, that you can certainly say that, I mean, I don't know if you would say that's what free will is all about if you're a philosopher, but what you could say is that, like, to the extent that your ability to indulge whatever you want isn't constrained, that's free will. Yeah. What Dan El- what Dan Dennett would call elbow room, or maybe. I'd Although re- if you were never tempted by something else, didn't ever really have that much of a choice in things, right? Exactly. Yeah. That was my thing. I mentioned Like, last- I'm never tempted to put my hand on a hot stove, so is there any, like, free will to not put your hands on hot stoves? Right. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I mentioned last episode, the um, episode 45 of The Very Bad Wizards, where they argued about, like, how much uh, your societal pressure as a child in- in- impacts where you can go in life. And they used bad examples, like they used, um, you know, kids in the, you know, in Detroit, you know, playing basketball and listening to hip hop. Like, isn't their future constrained? Because like they're not, they don't get the, they don't really have the option to like, you know, go to college and get some pointless degree in the arts or something. Because, mm-hmm. you know, what, or, you know, in the sciences, less pointless. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I have a degree that's basically an arts degree and it's pointless. <laughs> so I'm not shitting on other people. I'm shitting on myself. Um, I would have used the Amish as my my quintessential example. Like. Mm. You know, I don't know if they get to choose whether or not they get to work with cows or work with wheat, but they don't get to choose whether they get to work with computers or work with cars, you know? So, like, their their choice space is very finely constrained by their environment. And I think that sucks. And I think that's... To go back to my anti-religion thing, if the Amish were a billion strong, I would be super against the Amish. (laughs) There's this... I'm railing on the Amish right now. There's this, like, kind of thing that makes it kind of quaint. Like, they get to... They get to preserve kind of antiquity human, more antiquity human survival, which I think is great if you want to opt into it when you're 20 and you want to go join a cult and go, you know, 
throw away your phone and do whatever, yeah. go nuts. That sounds actually kind of cool. That's yeah. if that's a, if that's something you want to do. That's great. What I think is terrible is to raise a kid that can die of a splinter because they can't get they can't go get medicine. Are you saying then that the people who opt to join that cult should be sterilized so they don't have children? Uh. I wouldn't go so far, but maybe I am. Yeah, because um, then otherwise, some of them are going to have children, and then they're going to want to raise them. Or, or, they're, or they're forced to give their kids up, or you know, forced to break, th- leave the cult when they have kids or something. Whatever. Well, I mean, they have the rumspringer. That's, that's kind of like I know, a it, field trip in school, right? Yeah, so like, and yeah, it's a field trip where they show you all the worst parts of the great, great modern society yeah. while shunning you and you know being like, don't talk to us during this period. And it's it's... Like it, it's disingenuous yeah. way to represent rep, way to represent the rest of the world. Don't get me wrong; the rest of the world has a lot of shit in it too. But I, I think Rumspringa is honestly genius in how well it it makes people hate the outside of the Amish world. You know? Yeah. No, it's it's because you're lonely, you're homesick. All you have to turn to is like drugs and rock and roll out here, and it's kind of an empty life. And yeah, of course you want to go back. It's a great tool mm-hmm. if that's what you're going for. And you're thinking, yeah, I got a taste of that outside hedonistic world, and boy, was it horrible. For sure. Back to the quote. Yes, sorry. No, no, that was great. If people have the right to be tempted, and that's what free will is all about, the market is going to respond by supplying as much temptation as can be sold. Which is just, I would like that it was a callback to Birch's Law, which we talked about just an uh, episode or two ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, saying that, yeah. Literally just saying that. And then the next quote being, a key assumption of free market economics is that, in the absence of force and fraud, people can always refuse to engage in harmful transaction. To the extent this is true, a free market would be not merely the best policy on the whole, but a policy with few or no downsides. Now, this was really interesting because, like, just to reiterate it, a key assumption of economics is that, without force or fraud, people can refuse to engage in harmful transactions. And if you put it that way, that's not just the best policy of all options. There's like no downsides, right? I think if, the if downside, something is not to your advantage, you can just choose not to take that advantage. I and think I think the, the if there was no force or fraud, sure, but yeah. that's not a world that we live in. Well, especially with given how broad force can be, right? I I think that that is the trap that um, he's trying to warn away here because this came just like three or four episodes after policy debates should not appear one-sided. And he linked to policy debates should not appear one-sided in the a policy with fewer no downsides. So I think what he's trying to point out is if you think this is how free market economics works, then there's probably something very wrong because it looks to be one-sided, right? Right. Without force or fraud, this is great. So uh, what's the deal? And that should set off a bell that this policy, it looks so one-sided, there must be something else going on. And to me, not being an economist, I would just say that there's more, like there's too much force and fraud in the system for that to be perfect. Okay. So, you know, somebody could lie to you about whatever and then boom, you're addicted, you know, um, or something, right? Well, or they could give you exactly what you want and you like it so much you stop doing other things. Yeah. Which is like another another force, right? So they don't have to lie to you. They just, they... That's, that's not a force at all. No one forced anyone to play World of Warcraft until they died. <laughs> no. Um, no one forces people to eat candy bars. That's true, but our biology doesn't force us, but it pressures us. Maybe that's the difference. I think I think you absolutely cannot use words like force if you're talking about people choosing what they want to do because of their biology. Because that just kind of perverts the use of the word force. That's why I use pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, sir. I lose this argument. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but you're right. Because like, if we're pressured by our biology, like, then what else are we? Right. You know? Um, 
we don't we don't have anything else. It's not like there's some ghost in the machine that really wants the right thing, but our our stupid monkey brains are stopping us. Yeah. It's like all we are is our monkey brains, all that stuff laid on top of it. So it's it's interesting to say the least. Yeah. All right. So he points on as well that on some occasions in the ancestral environment, a typically beneficial act may in fact be harmful. Homo sapiens are still tempted by food, but our oversized prefrontal cortices give us a limited ability to resist temptation. Not unlimited ability. Our ancestors with too much willpower probably starved themselves to sacrifice to the gods, or failed to commit adultery one too many times. The video player who died must have exercised willpower in some sense to keep playing for so long without food or sleep. <laughs> there is that quote that I pulled out, because this just... Makes me like that's the other thing that's what makes people like Yudkowsky and Alexander great writers is a they're delivering lots of really cool content in a fun way but they also make me laugh mm-hmm. and I don't have to be laughing out loud to enjoy something but it helps yeah and so he's like I suppose one could argue that the consumer makes a rational decision that they'd, excuse me <laughs> I suppose someone could argue that the consumer makes a rational decision that they'd rather play StarCraft for the next hour than live the rest of their lives but let's not go there please. <laughs> And so I think that's that's a fair like just let's just leave that over here. We're gonna assume that they didn't decide that because come on, yeah, you're, you're, we're doing we're ruining the discussion on how many people are actually trying to die playing this game. Now this this next part kind of reminded me that all this was written before the replication process, the replication crisis, because he says that resisting any temptation takes conscious expenditure of an exist, exhaustible supply of mental energy, which I mean I believe is true because it's not easy necessarily to resist temptation but um but those he, are like those studies that like you can only be shown a marshmallow so many times right you take it exactly right. yeah. which which have now failed to replicate and so i was like oh that uh that doesn't hold up quite as well which is you know cool though because but the, the 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 benefit of this post is that it, that's not the crux of the post right. or you know certainly not the crux, crux of the sequences so like you know that that one part of this one post can fall apart and don't get me wrong, he cites a lot of, of the psychology that has been uh, called out, or not called out, has been, um, yeah. Failed to replicate. Yeah, failed to replicate and has, has been shown to be less than solid. Yeah. He says, even when where we, even where we successfully resist a super stimulus, it seems plausible that the effort required would de- deplete willpower much faster than resisting ancestral temptations. I don't know. Possibly true. I mean, anecdotally, it sounds true to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like my my office brings us bagels and donuts on Wednesdays because for some reason developers are like children and we lot we need lots of things to keep us there and keep us happy. So frankly, if they had donuts every day, it would be hard for me not to have one every day. I have one every single week when they when they bring them in. So mm. that's you might get that sounds tired like of just them after a while. I probably would. Yeah, like I just we we have snacks out in our office at all times, and I just I have some of them when I'm hungry, but for the most part, I don't. I don't know. I think you're a person of above average willpower. Maybe I just have below average attraction to donuts. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. yeah I, it's a hard time finding like a sweet thing for you to indulge yourself with. Mm. What is your like go-to thing? This is a complete tangent, but I meant to ask actually, because I have no idea. Like for the last two months, I've been really wanting cinnamon rolls. Okay. What is your thing? Do you not, do you literally not have one? I'm sure I do. I just, I don't know. I can't think of one offhand. <laughs> You're like, yeah, Stephen, I have one. It's called looking and feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> no. I don't know. It is hard to resist the temptations of the fair sex sometimes. That's fair. Um, <sighs> yeah, you're also more anti-food than most people. You eat to like just to survive. Where I, we've talked about this, and this is another tangent, but 
buckle up. It's not that long. Yeah. I one of the things that like we were talking about transhumanism earlier. You know, when we all have cool robot bodies where we don't have to eat or sleep, I think simulated eating would be something worth like putting in us. Hmm. Um, or you know, even like real eating where you eat real food and break it down and enjoy it, but like mm. you don't die without it or you don't get hungry. Yeah. Because like a there's the fun culture aspect of of getting together and having a meal, which we've been doing for you know millions of, or hundreds of thousands of years as a species. But if you eat, you would have to poop. Or something, I you mean, know, you'd, whatever. You'd have to get rid of that mass eventually. I know, but whatever. Okay. So however this would work. Again, <laughs> right. simulated, if we're all in the Matrix, we eat simulated, we simulated things and it just turns to nothing. Oh, yeah, I guess so, if we're in the Matrix. Yeah, I, whatever it is to make the thing work. I think it'd be fun to have that around because eating can be a lot of fun. I really enjoy the textures, the tastes, and all that stuff. And there are, there are parts of like super primitive things like eating and stuff that I find fun. I think the only times I really like eating... I'm not an overweight person, by the way. I should oh, no, no, no. Out, yeah. yeah, Steven is a very slim person. Not very slim. He's good. Good shape. <laughs> he's not like, you know... That's the best thing you said about Steven. He's, he's a good shape. <laughs> not in good shape. He's a good shape. <laughs> he's the correct shape for an adult human. <laughs> Barely. No, I, I... um. The only time I've really liked food is when I've been really hungry. Like uh, my first, my first year at Burning Man when I didn't bring enough food, and uh, after like a half day, people were just like handing out food. This one place I walked by, and I was like, "Oh, thank God, so good!" You told me about the time that you tried Soylent for like four days or oh, something, God. That was awful. and you literally cried after having like real food again. <laughs> I totally I didn't get that. literally cry, oh. but I would like tears in my eyes a little that's bit. That's fine, yeah. yeah. But in any case, I totally get it. Mm. And granted, that's a really high price to pay for that kind of reward because mm. of course your brain's going to be just like, "Thank God," right? Yeah. But when it comes to regular day-to-day eating, eh. yeah, fair enough. Mm. All right. So, your what I what I brought that up around though was because it ties to your willpower of resisting donuts is because you never wanted them in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But no, uh, the he brought up that that whole um, plausible that the effort required to deplete willpower, uh, effort required to resist depletes willpower much faster than ancestral environment, and goes on to say is public display of super stimuli a negative externality even to the people who say no. So, like, is it bad to have those donuts just laying in the office even if you say no to them because it took up some of your oh. brain power and your, you know, your ability to resist temptation just to have them there? <laughs> so, so I say no to a donut, but then I go home and cheat on my wife or exactly. something. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I think his case would be a little more nuanced than that. But Oh, next th- time I cheat on someone, I'm going to blame the donuts. That's fair. <laughs> Honey, you don't understand... They've had donuts at work all week. <laughs> right. I didn't have Just, a single donut. Right? Thank yeah. God I'm not fat. <laughs> you should be thanking my secretary. <laughs> um, maybe I'm trying to think of a what's a, what's a good example of that sort of thing. Like I guess because the, the whole the whole willpower is depleting thing turns out to be I mean less clear cut. Best than example it was. I can think of is uh, this is going to sound weird because like I do like porn and I think it is great, but um, I, I think. Porn can really skew your expectations and experiences of sex when you first start having sex as a young man. That's definitely true. Yeah, and like even in general, just like see, being constantly bombarded with super hot people who are like literally don't exist, right? Everywhere, it it changes how you look at everyone else in the world. Yeah, that's that's fair. I, I think that may be a bit of a negative externality. Like, I saw a European movie, uh, I think, like, a year or two ago, and this wasn't my observation. Someone else said it, but they were like, oh, you can tell that this was filmed in Europe because some people look like normal people. 
And it was true. Some people looked like average humans, whereas every movie you see in, in America, with some very rare exceptions, everyone is just super amazingly good looking. I'll cite the Avengers again. <laughs> They're all 11s out of 10. Right. Yeah, with, and, with and the exception just... of Hawkeye, who's maybe a 9. So. <laughs> and the, poor Hawkeye gets shit on all the time for everything. Hey, get a real it's su- true, though. He is the least hot Avenger. Get a, get a real superpower, Hawkeye. Right, um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's interesting, and there's... Yeah, porn is a good example. I, I think there's a lot to unpack with with porn. I think it's uh, it's absolutely a super stimuli. Um, it it gives you a lot of the feedback of eh, it's a whole thing. We'll save it for later. But um, we'll save it for no fab February. Sure. Is that is that is that a thing? <laughs> I've heard that term at least once. I don't know if that makes it a thing. Oh, no fab November. I was like, that's no shave November. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I guess we'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, man. Are we going to do a Bayesian conspiracy Seinfeld-like contest? Nope. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're moving on. We're, we're professionals. Um, so, yeah. It, it, first of all, it brings up a very interesting example that, that it might be a uh, negative externality there to have super stimuli around. Yeah. Which, um, we'll leave which, that open for discussion, I guess. Yeah. And I think it goes into the next uh, in the next topic as well he ends with an interesting uh science fiction story about humans who were marketed out of existence because they were given super cute uh like fake babies to have instead of real babies and no one wanted real babies anymore because the fake babies were like just as good in every single way except not with all the awful downsides yeah i i think that's fun i think um shelly might uh, Shelly comes to mind because she brought up that you know one reason some people that she suspects some people get pets and kids is that it's nice to lord over something that desperately needs your needs you to live Mm -hmm. i think that might be true for some people i don't know how true that is of like most pet owners and human owners Mm -hmm. but uh unless these robot kids would die without you then um then again maybe they would that sounds like i didn't read the story but that sounds like a crux of the whole thing like if it was like a tamagotchi that you know remember those i do it didn't die if you didn't feed it it just got sad and you know the room filled with poop or something right so i don't know what happened i never had one oh yeah they were um like little keychain sized toys i I remember i just Um, don't know what happens if you ignore one i think if you ignore them they get sad and like i said they poop that you're supposed to clean up or something but um if it was like that and uh what I'm getting at is that in the sci-fi story, which I haven't read and I'm speculating on, yeah, I imagine either. the robots died without you. Because that sounds like a really important ingredient for making you really want to take care of them. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like, you know, there's a handful of like robot puppies and stuff you can get that are just like complete jokes because they don't do any of the fun things that puppies do, like be soft and snuggly and have wet tongues and yeah. little feet and noses. And be so amazingly excited to see you every time you walk in the door. That's right. Yeah. But man, if they made good robot puppies, that could happen. So right. they'll never replace real puppies. Puppies are the one thing. They're pure magic. Yeah. All right, you can tell it's getting late for my brain. Luckily, we no, only have one too. post left. All right, last post. Useless medical disclaimers. I love that title already because, God, I have some things to say about them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as someone who had a couple medical procedures this week, I can tell you that they are completely... The, I, I feel his pain. Yeah. Although I'm less incensed about it than he seemed to be. Okay. All right. Uh, Eliezer ex- relates a fun experience of signing a medical waiver in which I acknowledge that there was a risk of infection, repeat surgery, chronic pain, amputation, spontaneous combustion, meteor strikes, and a plague of locusts over the land. It was the most pointless damned form I've ever seen in a doctor's office. What are the statistical incidences of any of these risks? Should I be more or less worried about dying in a car crash on the way home? Taken literally, this kind of information is absolutely useless for making decisions. You can't translate something into an expected utility, even a qualitative and approximate one, if it doesn't come with the probability attached. Yeah. 
I, I read this more just like this the first time he had to go to the doctor as an adult. Okay. And just like had to sign his own paperwork. Maybe it wasn't, but like I just see him seeing this and he's just like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, anyone who's had any sort of medical stuff done, you sign these things and it doesn't give you probabilities. No. And, and it's complete bullshit. It's the reason I, anyway, don't look at warning labels on medicine anymore. Because anything that came up in in their you know huge trials, they slap a label on like someone got this. Literally every every medication says may cause dizziness, so now none of them do because you know what one person got dizzy maybe it was related to the medicine. Now they put it on the label. I, I, I am of the opinion that if something is an actual uh, serious risk, my doctor will tell me of it. Like everyone knows SSRIs cause sexual dysfunction because it's a well known common side effect, and doctors always tell you about it. Yeah, I think. I mean, I still read the forms. Okay. I guess. And I, I take. Them, I skim them. I've. I've um, stopped bothering. It's just with with medicines, though. I would. I would suggest you read like the don't mix with this medicine list. Yeah. Because like, um, you know, like your Nyquil has acetaminophen in it, and so does your Tylenol. That's what it's made of. So like, if you're taking three Tylenol for the day to help with your cold, and then you take a big shot of Nyquil at night, you're taking too much acetaminophen. Yeah. So you should you should at least be aware of those interactions. But yeah, I mean, as far as causing dizziness, it's like, all right, I understand there's some risk to being dizzy. I'm going to take everything I take for the first time at home under controlled conditions before I decide whether or not I'm good to drive, right? Right. So, you know, some people, half of Vicodin will just knock them out and make them just, you know, not zombies, but kind of like, I guess, lethargic, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. whereas other people are like, oh, I'm good to go. I, I can keep going to work, you know, whatever. So Yeah, yeah so without some knowledge of how likely this is, it really isn't useful at all. Well, I think the downside with like... Now I'm nitpicking, but the downside of the medication is that they can't give you that on the bottle. Because, well, I guess they could say 90% of people have this, yeah. which is fair. Never mind. They could they, just they like could. have you know a little number point something that tells you the incidence rate. Yeah, I think that what I was going to bring up though with medicine is that like it interacts with different people differently. Whereas like a surgery is probably going to be the same for everybody. Mm, it depends on your hospital and your doctor. Well, but but your what they're doing, you know, if they're going to um, give you, you know, a shot in your spine, it's you, your spine's in the same spot as my spine, right? right. So like, it's not going to be that different for you than it is for me. But they have all the real reason they have all the shit on there is because one time somebody like, you know, got an epidural and they're like, oh my god, I can't feel my left leg anymore, and it's like, okay, cool. You might ever never feel your left leg again is what they're going to put on there to protect themselves so they don't have to pay out that lawsuit once. Yeah. But, yeah, it. I remember, oh, this is actually a good example. I got LASIK this summer, mm. and Rachel was driving me and uh, to go to the procedure, and I'm rereading the paperwork they gave me, and it says there's a chance of, you know, infection, blindness, and death. And I'm like, <laughs> this is the first time I'm feeling nervous about this, and we're on our way there right now. Yeah. And like I know that like my chances of dying are slim, but like you said, my doctor who was doing the, who set me up with this procedure gave me his he get he was I don't know if he's a rationalist or not, but he 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 Eliezer would love him. He gave me base rates for everything that he talked about. Oh, thank God! I mean, he he said, hey, I've I've done, you know, I've personally presided over like I don't know fifteen thousand of these surgeries or something. I've had two people lose sight in their eye over it, and you know, one person got shit-faced that night and tore out their their cornea like a contact lens and you know somebody else whatever did something right so like yeah exactly so but i mean he didn't say there's a chance you know just be ready he gave me a two and fifteen thousand whatever number rate right so i'm like okay cool don't be an idiot and i'll be fine yeah i mean i i had also heard that lasik sometimes can end up with blindness and i was terrified for a while but i was like i have never heard of this being a big deal if it was any sort of decent incidence rate, I would have heard about it, right? That was sort of my thing is that, you know, 
uncharitably, but this way I put it in my head, it was like, idiots get this done all the time and they don't go blind. Right. You know, so like, and I figured if I'm super careful, I'll be fine. There's literally nothing, there's nothing to worry about there then because also, you know, some people go into the hot tub, you know, the, the few days after and you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to get water in your eyes, all that stuff. They do it anyway and they're fine. You know, my doctor, and he even said this, that's why I loved him so much. I asked him, I was like, did you like teach or something? Cause I feel like I learned a lot in the last half an hour. And he's like, I've taught you know, a few lectures, wrote a few books. I'm like, that makes perfect sense because you're awesome. Cool. I would plug his name, but that sounds super shilly. If you need, if you're getting surgery, if you're getting LASIK surgery in Denver, uh, shoot me a message on a uh, personal message on Reddit. And I will tell you this doctor because he's outstanding. Cool. Anyway, uh, his his whole presentation involved everything that Yudkowsky complains about. I think it also kind of leads a little bit to fatalism. Like, a lot of the times nowadays, I'm like, well, I got to go in for this thing. Might kill me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and and it just, you know, it, it it leads to more of a the world feels scary and random rather than the world feels stable and safe. When, like, you're told every single thing can kill you and everything causes cancer. And I... I don't actually think this is likely the case, but I'm like, maybe it's pushing away from the slow life strategies into the fast life strategies if you start telling people that every single thing can kill them. Yeah, and certainly, you know, a lot of people, at least people I know, certainly guys, have like this huge reluctance to go get go to the doctor and get stuff fixed. And I think part of that is just like, I'm a man, I'll walk it off. And it's like, all right, you've been trying to walk this off for two years. Like, it's not going away. But the other the other part might just be like, well... Sure, I can't lift my arm above my shoulder, but I don't want to lose my arm, so I'm not going to get this done. And, you know, I talked to a doctor. They said you could lose your arm, so I'm not going to. But, yeah, what does it mean that you could? Hmm. I, I think that his his ask, his question put poignantly of, like, am I more or less likely to die on the way to the to the procedure than, I'm, than I am during a procedure? Yeah. That sounds like something they should have on the form. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, my, my, uh, my grandpa died um, a few days after he got, uh, it was like, double bypass or something. He had... He had polio as a kid, and then he had a bad heart for, like, ever. Um, but not bad enough. Oh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so he um, – I think his surgery had, like, a 20% fatality rate. And that's something that they tell you if it's, like – if it's high enough that you might actually die, they're going to give you percentages, right. um, I assume. But in many cases, they're Googleable. Hey, I'm getting double bypass. You know, here's my couple relevant facts. Okay, cool. In your situation, 30% of patients die during the procedure or in the following week or something and he had said hey you know what that's a risk i'm willing to take but if they just said you might that's not good enough i realize we're belaboring this point but it is just really funny and in a way that's kind of perversely funny too so um all right quote i'm not the litigious type but i seriously wonder if it would be possible to sue based on the theory that quote possibilities (laughs) with no probabilities attached to them are not useful information and should therefore constitute a should not constitute a disclaimer under the law which i'm Yes. Someone will win a case on that, <laughs> and frankly, he should have taken himself up on it. I, I mean, I seriously, like, when you tell someone literally anything has a chance of happening after this, you're giving them no information. Yeah, totally. All yeah. right. Um, he theorized that they probably don't have numbers because most people would not be able to correctly update based on those numbers, and says, clearly, innumeracy produces negative externalities, and it ought to be regulated. In particular, we should impose a tax on people who can't properly diminish the emotional impact of their anticipations by tiny probability factors. Two classic objections to regulation are that A, it interferes on personal freedom, and B, the individual always knows more about their own situation than the regulator. I think it's a joke that he says that uh, innumeracy causes negative externalities and so it ought to be regulated, especially considering his previous few posts on regulation. Right. Does he, d- does he have a point? I think I think he is joking because like he was talking about how hard, how hard it'd be to regulate 
super stimuli. Yeah. So I think he's saying, hey, to the people saying, like, let's regulate this, how do you fucking regulate this? And so to, to that extent... It the, does the, create a negative externality. That's right. And so at the beginning of this, he's just... It seems like he's just ranting because he just went to the doctor and it was super annoying. But he, he ties it in wonderfully with, with the context of the previous post. That, like, you know, again, how, how do you possibly legislate uh, numeracy, right? So uh, he has, like, a number of times, first with the case of numeracy now... And earlier with uh, Birch's Law and with the super stimuli told us things like, here are bad things about the market. They will provide as much SUVs, as much stupidity as the market will buy. They will provide as much super stimuli as the market will buy. And he seems to be pretty down on regulation. I think by the fact that he's brought these things up numerous times now, he's kind of asking us as readers to be like, what do you do about this? It, it totally seems like a challenge. Yeah. That's how I read it too. And the answer is I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> so the answer is I'm reading these so that you can tell me the answers, damn it. I would point out the good thing about inside porn is that it's inside porn, not inside do the work yourself. <laughs> um the the I wanted to point out that the uh some of the, the stuff that um Robert Hansen cited in the Elephant in the Brain and in previous stuff, just talking about medicine, is that people don't want to pay for statistics. Mm. There and I I'd have to dig this up, but it's in the chapter on healthcare, um, in the Elephant in the Brain. And I seem to remember Julia Galef talking about this somewhere too. Maybe it was on her episode with him. But you can offer somebody, hey, do you want the numbers on this? And they often say no. Hmm. And they'll and like especially if you ask like, do you want the numbers? We can go get them for fifty bucks. Hmm. Um, which if you're if you're spending two thousand dollars on you know your deductible to get your surgery taken care of or something, or if you don't have it and you're spending a hundred thousand dollars, you think fifty bucks is nothing. Yeah. But people seem to just not want to know, which hmm. is somewhat understandable like if, if i told you there's a chance this could kill you and you needed it you might not want me to tell you what the odds that it could kill you are right if you I might have... you, you, you don't count but well, the average person if i have to get it anyway then that information will not change my decision and that's, so there's yeah. no reason for me to pay what if it's i mean yeah that's... like whether it has a five percent chance or a 95 percent chance to kill me if i have to do it anyway yeah so i might it, as well save the 50 bucks in case i live maybe it's to fix your bum shoulder or something you know mm -hmm. and uh, I think I would definitely want to know the rates, but if somebody's like, I just want this, I, you know, no, nah, that's weird. I can't put myself in. I feel like I'm strawmanning people. There's no way I'd have to go back and find that. But I did, I did see that there was. I didn't look this up beforehand, so I don't have the actual numbers. But there, there was a, a to me, very surprising result that people seemed remarkably uninterested in getting quotes on probabilities of outcomes hmm. with their with with medical interventions they're also bizarrely interested in like shopping around which part of that is like the time and effort it takes to go to another doctor and how much you already liked your first one like i only went to one lasik person yeah. i should have looked at others there are other cheaper options maybe i liked someone that cost half as much 90 percent as much as i like this doctor and i could have saved you know 1500 dollars or something but i i was already sold did so. you go to, is his office based in boulder no okay i went to one who uh when I did it like eight years ago, was based in Boulder, and he was like number one or number two in in the Denver metro area. And yeah, also really expensive, but I was like, it's my eyes. I'm going to pay as much as it takes, even if uh, it's only like 10% better. That was something I joked about for years before getting LASIK, is that I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to bargain shop on eye surgery. Yeah. You know, I'll bargain shop on shoes or on cell phone chargers, but right. I, I can't just go get new eyes if they fuck up my only ones. Right. Yeah. So, all right. Those are the, those are the posts. Cool. Uh, they were fun to talk about. And for next time we have Archimedes chronophone and chronophone motivators, and we will have links to both of them up at the basin 
That's right. I know we had some more feedback, but it's like almost nine. Do you want to save that for next time? Uh, there was the one on the Patreon one, right? Yeah. I want to, let's skim it. All right, go ahead and hit that one. We do have other interesting feedback. We're sorry to the guys and girls who posted it that we didn't get to this episode. We'll get to it soon. Here's a random quick one from, uh, I don't think your name is meant to be pronounced on Reddit, Y-W-E-C-U-R. Y-W-E-C-U-R? Yeah. Eh, Y-W-E-C-U-R. Oh, okay. There we go. Um, you, you were talking about like selling out, sell out authors and stuff, and they said that The Martian is a, a rational fic, I think, and I think I totally agree. Oh, yeah. And a good example of a genre that can succeed in reaching a wider audience. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. It was outstanding. Yeah. And it, it was also, uh, I guess, outstanding kind of means, like, you know, special, mm-hmm. but it was. It, mm-hmm. it somehow managed to be super nerdy and super captivating to a, to a wider, wider people who wouldn't ordinarily find that stuff captivating. So yeah. um, I don't know how many people have read the book who weren't already into that, but I read the book because I saw the movie and the book was amazing. So, yeah. And even better than the movie. I thought so too. I found like his nerdy digressions of like so much better, his preparation to drive, to go pick up that, that, uh, that satellite so he could talk with earth. Yeah. That was just so interesting. Yeah. It, it, and, it like, wasn't just like, and it took lots of planning and it was really hard and I did it. Right. It was like, no, no, I'm going to give you like a full chapter on like how I prep for this shit because you get the feeling that he really did. Right. I loved what, it. When he was planting the potatoes and he was calculating out how many potatoes he could grow per cubic centimeter dirt, how much poop he needed for that, how many calories he could get for potato. It was like, it was interesting. It, it was, was great. good. And none of that was in the movie. N- not not so much. There was a little bit with like. Tiny bit. Yeah. They're like, you know, some numbers appeared on the screen, but yeah. it wasn't like, you know, here's the actual calculations. I really liked, um, he was on, uh, and Andy Weir, the author, was on Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. And which I don't listen to that much, but I heard this one and it was a few years ago. But Tyson had said to him, Hey, you know, there was very little that I found to take issue with in your stuff. And he was like, I wrote it with you ripping it apart in mind. Nice. <laughs> I I wanted to make sure that, that you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson wouldn't say, Oh, you got this wrong. Um, which I think, you know, hey, if you're writing a book with lots of science in it, isn't the best way isn't the isn't the worst way to go. Yeah. The one thing I think the movie did better was that the book started to drag near the end. Like at the very end when he was almost ho- uh, to the, you know, takeoff capsule and then there's like this slow storm that moves in and blocks out his son and all that i'm like oh god just 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 get to the end one more thing to go yeah yeah. exactly please i I did like the the end end more that like they in the in the oh wait how does it end in the book in the movie there's this whole dramatic thing where she jumps out and she's got the cable and she almost doesn't make it and it was like very much like a heroic rescue yeah in the in the book it's kind of much more procedural they have it all planned they jump in grab them hold them jump out yeah. And it, it felt much more like mechanical, like you would think it would go if they'd been planning it for 18 months on their way back. And I liked that kind of more rather than like, no, caution to the winds. We're going to do this. Right. Um, but it was cool. I don't know that one. God damn it, Alexa. Robot scared us. Yeah. There was also a part that I really liked that I think was only in the book where I forget all their roles, but the one of the, sm- I think it was the smallest person on the ship when they were flying back by earth, when they're going to go back and get Watley, she was talking with her parents. Yes. And yes. they had said, if you guys make it, if you guys don't make it, whatever you guys are all going to die. And she's like, well, don't tell anyone, but not all of us. Yeah. There's enough calories on the ship for me to make it back. Cause I'm the smallest. Yeah. And she lays out for him like that. We've talked about this. I'm going to, they are, they're going to take whatever, some sort of cyanide capsule or something that won't taint the meat. And I'm going to eat them to survive, yeah. <laughs> which is so hardcore. <laughs> right. um, great book. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. And I can't oversell the audiobook. Oh really? Um, oh yeah. The um, who did the audio book? I'm not sure who did it, okay. but whoever he does, he has he deserves a medal. He didn't just read this; he like he acted the entire thing. 
I think yeah they usually well not usually they often get like uh, celebrity voice actors to do the really big names. Oh, he might have been. I'm not sure, but he. I mean, he he did accents. He did um, like you know, log entry, Soul Fifty Six. I'm fucked and I'm gonna die. <laughs> he he doesn't he doesn't just like say it. I tried listening to an audiobook of Lord of the Rings. There's probably better ones now because this was like right before the movies came out mm-hmm. and it was terrible. Oh, audiobooks back in the day were just the worst. Yeah. Now they now they've gotten good, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I really liked the audiobook too. So. Last quick comment here. We've got one from Not Without Incident on the Patreon episode that we just had. I disagree with almost everything in this episode, but that's probably not a productive conversation. It's not that bad. You're, don't sell yourself short. Um, <laughs> instead, I'm really curious, not re- not in a rhetorical way, but actually surprised, how a group of four libertarian-leaning people could all cede moral authority to the law in the way that you did. Yeah, Inyash. Platforms obviously have to watch their own back legally in cases like DMCA and FOSTA, but in other, but in other cases where specific laws haven't been crafted to go after internet services, I don't see why it should even be part of the argument. So, um, I think we touched on this, and I think you had an answer. Yeah, I episode. don't think we touched on it. I replied uh, in the subreddit. Oh, you, you replied to me because I asked you. I was like, what about this law thing? And you said, basically, it's just a shelling fence that like, we, we can lay that up as a quick place to put this, to plant this, to put this line in the sand. And, but, and in specific, I'm in favor of the law uh, because I think for the most part it's come to the right conclusion it's the same conclusion that i would make where you can't in some ways it doesn't go quite far enough like you cannot uh actually threaten people with credible threats uh you can't incite people to violence uh and i would go so far as to say that uh you shouldn't be able to harass people by doing things like doxing them and setting you know mobs on them sending them things like i'm going to murder your children here's pictures of where your children go to school uh, which I don't think is actually illegal right now, but should be in my opinion. Um, but for the most part, I agree with where the law is. So I use that as a shorthand often. I'll be like, if it's not illegal, it's okay. Uh, because I kind of think that. Now, I'm not specifically ceding moral authority to the law. Because if the law was different, if the law was closer to how it was like in the uh, 50s, where there were a number of things you couldn't say. You beat me to it. Okay. That's just, yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would have been like, you know, with uh, Larry Flint and the people versus Larry Flint. We're like, yeah, we should be able to watch all the porn we want to watch. Or uh, it's, I'm sure there's probably some obscure counties where it was illegal for black people to try to advocate to vote or something, right? Yeah, I'm sure, um, yeah. So, like, it would have been against the law to try and rally them to get together to vote. Yeah. Um, so, certainly, that's fucked up. There's, um, I think, still a few countries around the world where uh, it's illegal to say bad things about the royalty. And there's places that are introducing blasphemy laws and stuff. So, right. so um, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not ceding ground to the legal authority because it's legal. I'm just latching onto it because I agree with the conclusion. If in, it was in, different, I wouldn't. In where we're at, in most places in modern society. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that's fair. Yeah, I think so, I think I think so too. And there's also the difference between like legal and moral, but. Um, and and in some cases, I like you, <laughs> I I like the fact that not without incident specifically brought up the cases of DMCA and FOSTA as being um, permissible because the platforms have to watch their back. But I actually hate both of those because of what they've done to free speech. FOSTA is a fucking blight upon society and is ruining things and ruining the lives of mainly sex workers, but uh, a lot of other people too. And DMCA is just the worst archaic copyright law that makes it so that you cannot modify your own electronics for your own personal use. I mean, those... Those are things I actually do have issues with, which are the law. And we've even done one episode before on... Um, with Chase on digital rights. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not all for the law, but uh, 
in general in terms of speech i like where it's gone there's uh, a, in terms of actual talking speech not these other kinds the protagonist in ward the sequel to worm mm-hmm. um kind of like in in worm you know some percentage of people have superpowers and a lot of them are villains because you get superpowers under duress like an x-men mm-hmm. um so there's I wasn't always under duress in x-men sometimes some it was born. just because you were well somewhere just because you hit puberty in x-men yeah, I guess you're right. I'm thinking more of the movies, too, okay. where a lot of them kind of woke up during stressful moments, like Rogue and others, right? Yeah. Um, but you're right. So X-Men, whatever. Um, in Worm, I think everybody gets their powers um, through trigger events, which are always like you're going to die or like someone's going to get hurt or something really stressful for you. Mm-hmm. And so that leads, you know, since that happens often in places where things suck, you get a lot of supervillains. But there's this kind of like cops and robbers thing where like, you know, we play by the rules because otherwise we could all destroy the planet. So we all know that and we're all going to do that ex- except when they don't. And then, then it's like, you know, the legislation, the people who legislate parahuman action say you can kill these people. Whereas ordinarily you're not supposed to, you okay. know, anyway. So in the, the sequel, the protagonist has this kind of like mantra that she follows where it's like, okay, first when she's trying to like follow a decision, like, you know, make a hard decision. Like, what do I do here? And this is after the cops and robbers game kind of fell apart. Mm. So she's like, all right, first, what's the law? All right. If the law doesn't have a clear answer, what does like my code say? And if my code doesn't have it, what do the people I trust say? I think that's the order. Matt will know if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the similar kind of thing. Right. And it's like, when in doubt, let's lean towards these. And if the, if the law is ambiguous or wrong here, then I can look further, but it's a great first place to look. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, they have no compunction. Well, they have very few compunctions about breaking the law when they need to. So it's just, it's not a bad place to start the conversation. I just saw the echo there when you were when you were talking about that. So yeah, I knew at least one listener would appreciate that, <laughs> even though I delivered it poorly. And with that, I think I'm all set for the night. Okay. Oh wait, yeah. we got to thank a Patreon. Oh my God, I can't believe we almost didn't do that. I got this one. Okay. Yeah, our patron this week is John Peterson. Thanks a lot for your support. I, I know we say the same thing every time, but it means the same every time. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Thank you so much. You keep the lights on around here, and uh, we really appreciate it. You are the people who help us not be worried about the Twitter mob coming after us. That's right. Um, <laughs> so that said, if you, uh, if you do want to support the podcast, we have a Patreon account at Patreon uh, slash The Bayesian Conspiracy. We have a web, website, TheBayesianConspiracyPodcast.com. No, just TheBayesianConspiracy.com. That's right. Uh, the email account is the Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And feel free to let us write us a review on iTunes. Uh, it gets it's part of their metrics for like what they what they show as trending. It's not just subscriber count. So mm. if you haven't done so, feel free to write a review. And that's and it. There's for always us. the subreddit if you want to comment there. Yeah, big fan of the subreddit. I haven't been on this week, but um it, I have read it on my phone and I have an app that I like that I rave about a lot. Apollo for iPhone. Check it out. <laughs> um, so one of these days they're gonna cut you a check, man. <laughs> I'll ask him. I, I tell you what, if, if he gets people that sign on and say, I heard about it through this, then maybe he'll sit, you know, give me a thumbs up. In any case, uh, yeah, don't forget about the subreddit either, r slash the Beijing Conspiracy. So okay. that's how to get a hold of us. All right. Thank you all for listening. Uh, see you in a couple weeks.